Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Very close to being done with Christmas shopping. I'd like to get maybe one more small gift for my wife that shows that I've put a lot more thought into purchasing her gift than I have. i got to see if I can come up with one more thing for her. But other than that, I think I'm done. I might have to get uh, a couple of gifts for... Uh, Joe Borelli's kids, but if they don't get a gift, then they're going to be fine. They're going to be just fine. And you know what I was wondering as I was coming in here last night? I was wondering, are we expected to tip the uh, the doorman downstairs? He's such a nice guy, and I feel like he might be deserving of a tip. But I don't know if the building, I don't know if I don't know if the radio station takes care of him or the other tenants take care of him. And if you do tip him. Uh, individually, what are you supposed to give him? $20? $40? Matt, wh- what's your take on that guy downstairs? He's such a nice guy. He's always He always goes out of his way. I mean, on, on the one level, I feel like I'm nice to him all year round. I always give him pizza and stuff, but... I think uh, the door... I think you give him 40 bucks. 40 I would say Are you so. giving him 40 Absolutely. You're giving him 40 Why not? Well, if you're giving him 40 I got to give him 50 <laughs> right? That's true. That's right. I mean, then, you know, okay. All right, so... Maybe a hundred. Get out of here. $100, please. He's not getting $100. He takes care of you, doesn't he? He, I, what, what, he presses the button to let me in. Right. So you don't have to fumble around. You got your bag. You got your laptop. <laughs> you got 100 things in your hands. That's he true. lets you open the gate. Un- he lets you in. $100? Why not? Yeah, I don't know about $100. I, 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 I have a, I have He'll a, never forget you. I have a son to uh, take care of. That's true. Hundred dollars. Oh, okay. I, I might do fifty. I might uh, do fifty. There you go. This kid, his mom is already breaking into his piggy bank, and he's crying about that. And and you want to take a hundred dollars of his inheritance and give it? What is the gentleman's name downstairs? Do you remember his name? I I actually don't know. I know Molly. You know him, right? Would you remember his name? Uh. Oh my God! Okay, nobody knows his name. <laughs> so, I, if nobody remembers his name, you can't give him a hundred dollars. Okay, that's that's that. All right, so that's that's that. Well, I just don't want to tell you his name is Pete. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. You you accuse poor Philip of being named Pete. Heaven knows what Ryan's name is going to be by the time that you uh, that you're done with him. But it, it it serves him right because he's got all sorts of people as the wrong name and from the wrong place anyway. So that's neither here nor there. Now. Um, 
on to the serious matter of uh, today's show. We've got a lot of interesting things happening today. One of my favorites, Robert Wall, is going to be here in uh, about 15 minutes. We're going to talk sports. We're going to talk movies. We're going to talk entertainment. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. And then I heard this really interesting interview on another radio station recently with a gentleman named Stephen Kent. And he was talking about his book, How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. And I'm into Star Wars, and I like Star Wars. And sure enough, um, to apply the lessons from Star Wars to politics and society, I thought was pretty interesting. So I checked out his podcast. And he's got a really interesting podcast, so I thought he might be interesting to talk to. Well, we'll talk about this book. We'll talk politics, Star Wars, maybe maybe some alien stuff as well, because I did stumble upon one uh, podcast interview that he did, which was quite good. And 3.30, we're going to talk Watergate. We are coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. And, well, I mean, it's still a couple of years away, but it's still it's right around that 50-year mark. And we have President Nixon's former attorney. Jeff Shepard, he's going to join me. I, In preparation for this interview, I reached out to the two people that I am acquainted with that know more about Watergate than anyone else, Pat Buchanan and James Rosen. And I, Pat said he knows more about Watergate than anybody. And if Pat Buchanan who's no slouch when it comes to the Nixon White House, says that, then, uh, then so be it. But let me... Let me take you back in time, if I can, a mere four days to when a caller called in and asked the following. Listen to this question and listen to my response. Billy is in Mawa. Hello, Billy. Hi. Good evening. Good morning. Good morning. So fast forwarding to the 2024 election. Who do you predict will be the two presidential, um, Republican and Democrat, and who will be their running mate? Oh, see, that's a good question. I'd want to think about that uh, a little bit, but I'll I'll do my best, uh, you know, uh, off the top of my head here. I'm going to say I'm going to say um, for the Republicans, it's Donald Trump and Kristi Noem. And for the Democrats, it's... um, that is much tougher to predict, uh, but I'll say it is uh, um, that is much tougher to predict. But I'll, I'll say that one is um, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. So there you have it. That was my predict. We're back in the present day, or at least the near present for those of you listening on the podcast. That was my prediction. And I stand by that. I don't think President Biden's going to run for a second term. Now that has become talked about in greater and greater circles. Brett Stevens wrote a column about that in the uh, New York Times. I know Michael Smirkanish has done a few col- uh, a few pieces on this on CNN. And yesterday, the Washington Post had a column by Aaron Blake where they rank the top ten non-Biden Democrats for president in 2024. Now, the person they list as first is Kamala Harris. I don't think Harris is going to be the nominee. I don't think she impressed many people during either the presidential primary campaign or the vice presidential campaign uh, where she was the you know running mate to Joe Biden. I really don't think she's gained a great deal of support. And it's not as if she's accomplished terribly much as 
the vice president. If anything, I think she's damaged her brand. I heard Dominic Carter playing a little bit of that interview that she did with uh, Charlemagne. I don't see how she's helped her standing at all. I mean, the longer Biden acts like he's running for reelection, the better it is for her because it freezes out almost anybody else. And she can kind of slip in there as the presumptive nominee. But that's the, they list her as number one. They list Pete Buttigieg as number two. I think Buttigieg is much better uh, served as a or much better as a running mate than as the top of the ticket, mainly because of his youth and his lack of experience running anything. I mean, he was the mayor of a city that has I, I think I have more people on my block than are in the city that he was the mayor of out in Indiana. And then the number three person that the Washington Post lists is Elizabeth Warren. And uh, the Washington Post writes, Bernie Sanders has said pretty unequivocally that another run for president is not in the cards. After all, the senator from Vermont would be 83 on Election Day. And the one who benefits the most from that is the senator from Massachusetts, who often split votes with the more the more liberal voters with Sanders during the campaign. Both stuck it out in 2020 for a long time, even as more moderate candidates increasingly fell by the wayside. So I'd love to hear you, particularly if you're a Democrat, Ryan, if they're a Democrat, let them go to the front of the line. Who do you think are the top non-Biden Democrats for president and vice president in 2024? Not who do you hope, but who objectively do you think will be the nominee for president and vice president in 2024? Give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If I was voting my hopes, not my uh, predictions here, obviously number one on my list would be the former congresswoman from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard. Number two on my list would be the former senator from Virginia, Jim Webb. Those two are... Model public servants, I would love to vote for them for anything. I also would uh, love to see Senator Kirsten Cinema run, but because Kirsten Cinema, along with Joe Manchin, is seen as one of the stumbling blocks to the more aggressive aspects of uh, Joe Biden's agenda, I don't think, at least for the time being, she has much of a chance as, at being the nominee nationally. That could change. She does seem to be playing from the John McCain playbook. John McCain. For uh, all his strengths, John McCain, as a politician, was best at one thing, getting press. That's why, if you notice, when George Bush was the president, John McCain was the most liberal Republican senator. Why? Be- with the exception of uh, of uh, uh, Chafee, Lincoln Chafee, or, uh, or uh, Jim Jeffords. But why? Because he knew by being a Republican critic of a Republican administration, he could be on the Sunday shows every single week. And you get that attention, as Donald Trump found out, that works incredibly well in terms of mounting a nationwide campaign for president. Um, And then Obama becomes president. What happens? 
McCain becomes just about the most conservative member of the U.S. Senate on his voting record. Why? Because he knew that, again, would get him on television every day and on talk radio, a medium which was not exactly warm to him during his own candidacy in 2000. So McCain went from being the most anti-Republican Republican under the Bush administration to being the most uh, anti-Democrat Republican under the Obama administration. And then, obviously, when Trump was elected, we know what happened there. Kirsten Cinema has succeeded in one, doing right by her constituents, but she succeeded in getting a lot of attention. And in the current climate, I hate to say this, but in the current climate, getting a lot of attention does count for something. So I'd love to know who you think the top non-Biden Democrats are for uh, 2024. 800-848-9222. I'll give you the ones that the Washington Post lists in just a minute, but I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in. 1-800-848-WABC. It was interesting. You know, the other thing that I, I find very interesting and I want to mention before we run out of time here and get to uh, Robert Wall, you, the biggest political news out of the state of New Jersey was the fact that Senator Steve Sweeney was defeated for reelection. The outgoing president, Steve Sweeney, who was probably the most powerful politician in New Jersey, I would venture to say he was more powerful than the governor. One, because he controlled one of the three branches of government, uh, uh, just like the governor does, but also because he is not term limited. He wasn't term limited. So he could wait out Phil Murphy's agenda on just about anything. Sweeney, and this was a story broken by our own uh, David Wildstein in the New Jersey Globe, and you could listen to New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Saturday afternoons. It's a great show if you're interested in learning about New Jersey politics. I'll tell you, we are so lucky to have David Wildstein on this station. I, I don't know if you're not listening to that show, if you have a full appreciation for how smart he is, but if you're interested in learning about what's happening in Jersey, he's the guy. He is the guy. It's funny. Those of us that know a little bit about politics, which I do, mostly New York, though, um, we can recognize people that know a great deal about politics. You could tell they're not just spitballing. And my observations are when it comes to New York politics, I don't think there's anybody that knows more than Dominic Carter. When it comes to New Jersey politics, I don't think there's anybody that knows more than David Wildstein. So Wildstein broke this story that... Even though Steve Sweeney lost re-election, he, and in a very shocking defeat, he is actually going to be running for governor four years from now. And that was confirmed on Tuesday when Sweeney told union members in New Jersey that he is planning to run for governor. Even though he lost re-election to his Senate seat, he's running for governor. It's always interesting to me, these folks that lose their lower-level election and say, oh, well, I, I did so well, let me run for higher office. We see it again and again. Rick Santorum in Pennsylvania lost re-election. What does he do? He runs for president twice. Uh, we're seeing it now in New York. Rob Astorino lost re-election as county executive, then said, all right, let me let me humble myself. Let me run for state Senate. Lost that. And then he says, what? Oh, I'm going to run for governor now. Uh, excuse me. I, I, in the old conventional political playbook, 
You'd have to actually win elections to be able to run for higher office. That's out the window. Beto O'Rourke, he runs for he runs for U.S. Senate, loses that. Oh, I lost that. Let me run for president. I lost that. Let me run for governor. It's just I don't understand. I don't clearly the conventional political playbook is out the window. So I'd love to hear you, uh, your thoughts on who you think the Democratic nominee will be if it's not Joe Biden in 2024. Also, uh, what you think of these guys like Sweeney, like Astorino, losing reelection and then running for higher office. Does that give you any pause? 1-800-848-WABC, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 open lines if you want to jump on board. Let me begin with Drew in White Plains. Hello, Drew. Uh, how's it going? Oh, Frank, this is such a tough question, but I think a lot of it, I wouldn't count Phil Murphy out. And the reason why I say that is because I feel like he has the, he might have the Wall Street backing, which is going to be big. And I also feel like he might be able to appeal to moderate voters. Now, Phil Murphy has to do a big thing, because as we know, this is a big thing in the Democratic primary of making inroads with African-American voters. You know, I would say Cory Booker, but to me, he's been way too quiet. Um, I can't remember. I just looked his name up. The governor, um, the senator from Virginia, the one who got all that money, I would keep an eye out for him or Tim Kaine. So it's so wide open right now. You just, it's, it's, it's really no telling. Well, you're talking about Mark and Warner? I, Mark Warner? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes, you know, yes. I like Mark Warner. I could conceivably vote for Mark Warner. But I think that Warner is a little too moderate to win the Democratic nomination nationally. I, I think the mood of the Democratic primary electorate is so far to the left that they're going to be looking. I mean, Amy Klobuchar was too moderate for them. I think they're going to be looking for somebody I, I, I much think, further I to the left. She might have a shot. Oh, I agree I with people, you. I agree with you. And, I, and, and so did the Washington Post. Losing, they ranked her fourth. I think as far as people losing and running again, um, I honestly said it. And I'm going to let you comment on this. Republicans blew it this year um, as far as in New York State. I mean, I, your listeners aren't going to want to hear it. They're going to lose next year statewide. And they should have ran Harry Wilson. It is no reason why you don't run Harry Wilson. Well, I mean, I Drew, like Drew, no, nothing Drew. stopped Harry Wilson from choosing to run. Nobody said to him, hey, Harry, there's no way you can run for office. Harry Wilson, they would have loved Harry Wilson as a candidate for statewide office. It's not. No one said you can't run Harry. I mean, they would love Harry Wilson for statewide office. I don't think Harry Wilson believes that he can win. But I'll give you the rest of this list, and I want to hear uh, your um your your picks for who you think the top Democrat would be to run in 2024 that's not named Biden. Washington Post lists uh, Harris one, Buttigieg two, Warren three, Klobuchar four, Roy Cooper five. And he is the two term governor of North Carolina. That's an interesting choice because he's from a purple state. North Carolina is a state Democrats win. It's a state Republicans win. So if you can have somebody that's popular in a purple state, that goes a long way. Cory Booker, number six. Cory Booker, again, I don't think he did well at all during the presidential uh, primary race. There's some people that improved their standing when they ran for president. Buttigieg, in my view, is in that category. Uh, Yang is in that category. 
uh, Tulsi Gabbard is in that category. Elizabeth, uh, excuse me, uh, Bernie Sanders is in that category. There are some people that I think substantially worsened their profile. Cory Booker has got to be one example. Uh, Marco Rubio, one example, if we're going back four years. So Gavin Newsom is what the Washington Post lists as number seven. Mitch Landrieu, interesting choice, number eight, the former New Orleans mayor. I think he's an interesting choice. You know why? He has no voting record. If you've been a state senator, a congressman, or a U.S. senator, you have a voting record, and there's always bad votes that you take. And they can hang that around your your candidacy and make you look bad, no matter how good your candidacy is. Then they list number nine as Stacey Abrams and number 10 as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And then others who did not make the top 10, but they say are worth mentioning, are uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, uh, Governor Phil Murphy, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmore, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, and former First Lady Michelle Obama. I, You know, you always hear about Michelle Obama. I don't think she has any interest in running for president or vice president, personally. I don't. Uh, tell me what you think. 800-848-WABC. Karen is in Rockland County. Hello, Karen. Hello, how are you? Good, Karen. Uh, turn your radio off, please. We'll come back to you. 800-848-9222. John is in Schenectady. Hello, John. Hey, Frankie. How you doing? Happy holidays. Thank you. To you and your new son, Carl. Thank you very much. Um, my problem is I'm 65 years old. I've only voted twice in my life. Well, hopefully it was in different elections. Yeah, it was, you know, the four-year, the four-year. Oh, thank goodness. I voted for Trump, and I will vote for him again. All right. Well, what if he's not running? Then I'm not going to vote. Okay. All right. Well, I think there's a lot of people that feel that way, John. Uh, Trump did inspire a whole new constituency, and uh, I think uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see where that constituency goes. What about what if you're at playing odds maker here, John? Who do you okay. think the top Democrat is uh, that would run if Joe Biden doesn't seek reelection? Um, boy, I'm not good with politics. All right. Um, well, stay tuned. Like we'll, the top three. Well, I just gave you 10. So stay tuned. We'll talk uh, We'll talk sports in just a minute with uh, Robert Wall. Karen is in Rockland County. We'll try again. Hello, Karen. He didn't wait for you to turn the radio on. I don't know if I'm going to get back to him. but Yeah, Karen, you're on the air, Karen. Be heard. Oh. <laughs> those, uh, those 10 names you just mentioned now, I wouldn't want any of them as president. Well, I'm not asking necessarily who you'd prefer. I'm asking you to put on your ad, your analyst's cap and, uh, you know, and to, as an analyst, predict who you think the nominee would be. Well, I would like, uh, well, Ted Cruz is a Republican. I can't think of that. Uh, Joseph Cinema, number one. Not, not uh, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin. You know, a lot of Democrats are unhappy with him. I think it's going to be very tough for him to win the Democratic nomination. Jerry, real quick, uh, tell me who uh, who you think the top Democrat would be if Biden doesn't seek reelection. Uh, I'd say just hearing the, the, the 20 that you just read, 
I think the Republicans are going to roll in 24. Well, all, tw- all 20 are losers. Yeah, well, be careful. A lot of people thought the same thing about Biden in 2020, and it's always pride that cometh before the fall. Uh, we'll, we'll, if you want to comment on this, we'll take calls a little bit later as well. Meantime, uh, one of the results of the Biden administration has been rampant inflation. Have you been to the grocery store? Have you been to a gas station? Have you seen what the price of Everything is. I don't know if you heard my conversation with John Katzmatidis on Sunday. I mean, he can afford it because he's a billionaire. But he went out, he and Margot went out with another couple that we know, Todd and Liz. They bought small four ice creams from Carvel on Saturday night. You know how much it was? $31. $31 for four ice creams from Carvel. Now, once that happens, it's over, Johnny. It's over. You can't have an organized society when... When you're charging people $31 for four tiny little cups of ice cream, unless they secretly charge John based on his income, but I don't think that's the case. So what can you do about it? Gold, silver, precious metals. That's what you can do about it. If you have an existing retirement account, roll that money into a gold or a silver IRA. If you're ready to do that, do it with legacy precious metals. Gold really needs to be a part of every wise investor's portfolio, and Legacy is the company that you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. Contact Legacy Precious Metals today. Call 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. Or visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. W-A-B-C. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. They say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But if you're fooled year after year after year, who is really the fool? Well, uh, such has been the case with New York Met fans, with two exceptions, in just about every year since 1962. Every year, we make some major moves during the offseason, and then sure enough, the Mets find a way to disappoint us. Sometimes it's because the manager is in a cheating scandal. Sometimes it's because the general manager gets me tooed. Sometimes it's because we pay a, a great player a whole lot of money and he gets hurt as he's signing his contract. So is it shame on me as a Met fan if I'm fooled again? Well, somebody that knows sports as well as he knows entertainment, if not better, is somebody that I've been an admirer of for many years, decades, quite frankly. He's uh, very funny. He's an actor, a writer, a comedian, and a producer. But uh, I always enjoy taking advantage of his expertise in the realm of sports. One of my favorites, you probably know him best for playing Arliss, but uh, he's done a whole lot more than that. The one and only Robert Wall. Robert, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you very much for having me. That was quite kind of you. You're, uh, that was very nice of you to say. Well, it, it has the added virtue of being true. It's funny. I know you used to hang out at these Mitchell Modell Sunday football parties, and people knew yes. what, a fa- what a fan I was of yours who were there. And they'd say to me, you know, that guy you like, Robert Wall, 
he knows more about sports than any of the commentators that are commentating on these games. So you, uh, you've developed quite a reputation in the sports area. Now, folks know you from probably a lot of the movies you've done, uh, Batman, certainly, Bull Durham. Obviously, I mentioned Arliss on HBO. That was one of the first big HBO shows. But um, would you say sports is your real passion? I know you've done some entertainment movies and television that deal with sports. But uh, how does your passion for, for sports dovetail with your work? as an entertainer? Well, I've been fortunate that I've been able to be in a couple of sports projects. And, uh, and of course, the Arliss show was something I created because it's a world I knew something about. And, uh, and the guy who ran HBO at the time was a person who first put me on stage as a comic, and he trusted me. And, uh, but my passion... Now, baseball, first and foremost, is my biggest passion in sports. Uh, I like football, too, and, you know, the other sport, but I, baseball is my big passion. I, I, I'm a huge, I love baseball. I just love, I like professional baseball because it's, uh, see, the whole thing about professional sports fascinates me because you're talking about an oxymoron in certain ways. In sports, in theory, it's the pure nature of the activity, the competition, and all, in theory. But then there's that word professional. And once you're professional, that means business. And that means the decision-making isn't always the same just to win. You, have, you are a professional. So there, I, that's why I love it, because of the contradictions, conundrums, and stuff like that. But I also love just the way the game's played. I just love a well-played baseball game. I know you're from Jersey originally. Who did you grow up rooting for? Well, I was uh, in the early 60s. Uh, there was only before the Mets came in, there was only the Yankees. And fortunately, I, uh, my dad took me to some Yankee games and I became a huge, especially Maris and Mantle fan, especially Maris, because everybody was Mantle. So I'm being the contrarian that I've now become. Uh, also, I played right field and I, and I swung left handed. So Maris was the perfect guy for me. Sure, uh, sure. Did you ever think about pursuing a career, even after you achieved some degree of uh, success and notoriety in entertainment, did you ever consider pursuing a career as a broadcaster or, or an analyst on a regular basis? Well, I had a short-lived uh, radio show, sports show. I love that, that show. Was it was on a Westwood One. Uh, but you, you call yeah, it a sports... it lasted about five months. No, no. The problem was... The problem is we weren't on live. They didn't have any clearances. So yeah. it's hard to be on a couple hours and not take phone calls. Yeah. You know, especially when you want to talk to the people. Um, I, I get to do that a little bit. I was on 60 Minutes Sports for a couple of series. And then I, I'm occasionally invited on by uh, um, the sports reporters, Mike Lupica, Mitch Album, and Bob Ryan. When one of them goes on vacation, sometimes I fill in for them, which is which is quite nice. I mean, that's quite an honor with those three guys. Um, so, but <clears throat> no, I like, I, you know, sports and like I, I was on WFA to, to say a rival network the other day because of my okay. relationship with Craig and Carton. Yeah, I caught some of that interview. Uh, I thought you made a lot of sense. Now, let me ask you about the New York Mets. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic if you're a Mets fan. Uh, primarily the signing of Matt Scherzer, quite possibly the best pitcher in baseball. And uh, this one-two combination that the Mets are now going to have is uh, something that I get really excited about. This week, the Mets decided to break their tradition of hiring managers that have never managed in the major leagues before, and they decided to hire Buck Scherzer. Walter, do you think Met fans listening to us right now have a reason to be optimistic? Yes, absolutely. I mean, they hired the smartest person I've ever met in the game of baseball. Uh, he is the most 
he is the brightest, smartest, most detail-oriented. Um, you know, anybody who comes in contact with him and knows baseball is just walks away amazed. And by the way, he's very funny. He's got an incredibly dry sense of humor, but he is funny. Um, Buck knows more about the game. You know, when I talk to my, the guy, my friends at the MLB Network, they're in awe of this guy. Uh, they absolutely got the right guy. They're, I mean, I, there was no other way. As my friend said, the only way he shouldn't get the – if he gets the, doesn't get the job, that's a pure Met move. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, uh, but yes, I mean, this guy – you're never going to be outthought. You're never going to be outmanaged. You know, he may make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And by the way, if you pull a pinch hitter, a lot of times you can make the right move and it doesn't work. That's something else. That's not a mistake. You know, if a guy comes in and you bring in a left-hander and he jams the, bat, the batter and the guy dunks it over second base, well, you know, conversely, you bring up a pinch hitter and he hits a frozen rope, a line drive, but it's right out the shortstop. Now, was it the wrong move? No. But did it work? No. So there's a big difference with those two. Well, it's right. Uh, no, I think that it, you know, I'm a I'm a gambler occasionally too. You you can play the right strategy in blackjack. That doesn't mean you win money if you hit when you're supposed exactly. to hit. Exactly. Uh, exactly. You, you alluded to the business of sports. The of uh, the fact that uh, baseball is a business. It's a profession. The owners of these teams want to make money. The players want to make money. Now, I'm wondering if you think. Baseball specifically, the last 10, 15 years especially, has become too driven by numbers. We've seen not only an emphasis on things like sabermetrics, but you watch any given game and you see these overshifts where the uh, the third baseman is practically playing behind the first baseman. It looks bizarre, and it's all driven by data and scouting and numbers and numbers and numbers. Have we taken away too much of that human element from the game of baseball? Well, Okay, well, there's two different questions. Um, have we taken away the – well, there's still humans playing the game. It's not, the, the thing about the shifts in the numbers is they work. Um, for, you know, it's not as much fun for the layman to watch the game. I don't enjoy it uh, that much, as much. But when you overshift, it works. You see how many, ball, how many balls that are hit into that area are taking away hits. Now, that's not necessarily good for the entertainment portion of the game, but the data does work in that kind of thing. The data works more in, in, in defensive stuff because it's right in front of you. You can see what a guy hits. Less so when it comes to, to me, with these pitching changes and the pitches, the, dealing with so with the pitchers. To me, the more pitchers that come into a game, the more chances of the, one of them just isn't going to have it. It's just, you know, if, if I can use two pitchers, I'd rather use two than three. I'd rather use three than five. I mean, it's just by nature. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, getting back to the shift, I'm not a huge – I don't mind the shift. But, I'm, again, Buck Showalter, he said, I, you can put three people on, but they should have to start with one foot on the infield. Mm, mm. And I said, that's fine. That's perfect. I have no problem. See, again, that's Buck. They're going to be – they're going to be, you're never going to worry about the clubhouse. You know, this is a guy who had a deal with Alex Rodriguez tipping, telling the pitcher, calling pitchers, calling pitchers from the pitchers at shortstop. And he had to go in there and tell a $250, $250 million guy, don't do that. And he's funny. He, now, here's another positive. Unlike any of these other guys, Buck knows can, can work in New York. 
We know that. Yeah. Oh. I mean, uh, he's done that. Uh, he's only gotten better. He's he, you know, he works with the Yankee broadcasters. He worked for the Yankees. He he helped build that whole organization. You know, he works with MLB Network. He's not going to have a problem dealing with the New York media. First of all, he knows all of them. Oh yeah. The uh, yeah, I mean, that's not going to be. The problem, you know, the mess problem is not going to be any more in the managerial spot. That, don't even worry about that. They're the right guy there. The mess problems are going to be, A, what defense are they putting on the field? Um, and getting, you know, timely hits. And, 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 of course, just like any other team, the health of the pitchers. I mean, if DeGrom and Scherzer can stay healthy, that's pretty tough to beat. Absolutely. As a one-two. Ab- absolutely. That's tough to beat as a, as a one-two. Um, if they stay healthy, you still got to get other pitchers, and you got to hope you still have to have your your bullpen has to hold up. Right, the Mets it have to, to also hold. occasionally. You're not winning if the bullpens. The, the Mets also have to occasionally learn how to score runs when Degrom pitches, which is something that's been quite a challenge for them the last couple of years. In terms of uh, in terms of baseball and the human element, there we saw a kind of a controversial end to the Giants, uh, you know, uh, playoff series last year, and they say that the umpire blew a third strike call when the Giants lost to the Padres and it renewed calls for robotic umpires for calling balls and strikes. Do you think that poor that poor umpiring might have paved the way for robotic umpires in the future? And what's your view of what that does to the game? I don't you know, I think the robotic ups have to deal more with balls crossing the plate. I don't know how they're going to do that with a check swing. That's not what they're doing the robo ups from. That's still going to be the umpire's call. The robo umps are about balls crossing the plate, you know, whether it strikes or balls, and they still got to figure that out. The best now, what I so I, I don't know. I'd like to see. I'd like to see how it works. I'd like to see it, you know, you know, because a lot of times we're always afraid of stuff, and to me, it turns out most of the time it's pretty good. The changes, you know, baseball's so conservative. By far, it's the most conservative sport. <laughs> By far, the they don't change anything. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad to see, uh, you know, they've been for practicing, you know, they've been doing all these games in the minor leagues with uh, pitch clocks and everything. Mm-hmm. It's like 20 second clocks. Everybody who has done this and seen it and lo- loves it. Every, and the players love it because they are on their toes and it's just go. And it happens like this. And it's just, it's constantly, it, it, it speeds up the whole thing. It's like having a faster drum beat. <laughs> it's like a drummer who's got a quicker drum beat. And then a slower drum beat. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, so I'm interested in seeing that. I'd like to see a clock. They stop stepping outside, inside and outside the box. I mean, you know, we're, it's like we're not taking away nine innings. We're not taking away extra innings. We're not, I mean, not extra innings. We're not taking away 27 outs, three strikes, and you're out. You're just making a pitch a little faster. Yeah. They said the same thing about basketball 100 years ago. You know, it's, it's fine. They put it in the clock. That's there is some, much better for the fans. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Robert Wool, uh, legendary comedian, actor, uh, films like uh, Batman, Bull Durham, Good Morning Vietnam, worked with some of the biggest stars in the history of the movie business, been involved in some uh, terrific uh, movies and television programs, great comic in his own right. One change they are talking about making, and this appears to have a head of steam, and the Players Union is all for this, is making the designated hitter rule not only take place, with the American League, but do as they do with the minor leagues, where it would be ubiquitous across both the NL and the AL. I have to think you've got to be opposed to that, right? 100% wrong. 
I'm so pro DH, it's unbelievable. Really? really? I don't have to watch. Why do I want to watch a pitcher foul off a third strike bunt? They can't hit. It's an automatic out. It's a waste of time. It is. Just, it, it, it stops the game cold. It's like you need more offense in this game. You don't need less offense. Get rid of that. That get. They can't get rid of it fast enough for me. It's a sure as well. No strategy. When I hear this BS about strategy, there is no strategy in today's game. How many times is a pitcher coming up to bat in today's game? Once. Once maybe. Uh, Maybe fair enough. There's no strategy. There is no strategy about that. So why not put? I would much rather watch David Ortiz hit than to watch. Uh, uh, you know, you know, than than to to watch a pitcher who can't hit. They don't hit. Yes, once in a blue moon, uh, you'll get a uh, Madison Bumgarner or a Zach Frankie. But you know what? They hit about zero eighty most of the time. They, and not only did they destroy the nine hitter, it destroys the number eight hitter. No. They can't get rid of it fast enough. Uh, well, fair enough. I, the, yeah, we won't call, accuse you of straddling the fence on that one. Front page of Sunday's New York Times was an interesting article about what I consider to be a disturbing trend, which is the trend of youth, specifically Generation Z, not wanting to play real sports and instead migrating towards esports and things like video games. I think the headline was something along the lines of forget play ball. Uh, now uh, children are doing PlayStation. Uh, what's are you pessimistic about the future of sports in general? And baseball specifically, that have had a, a tough time attracting the next generation of American youth. Um, I saw that article, by the way. It was a good article. Um, in my pessimistic, baseball's got to adapt more. If we're talking about baseball, they need to pick up the pace. They need to get more action into the game. They need to, to pick up the pace of the game. And again, having a pitcher bat just doesn't help that. Um, no, they need to – baseball does have to adapt because people are turning it off. There's no question about that. Uh, there'll still be a core of us, and we will watch it and love it, but there's no doubt that the younger generation is uh, is not turning it on as, as, as frequently because it's, it is slow. There was a point – at one point where there wasn't – was George Will was telling me in the playoffs there was one part – that lasted an hour and a half. It lasted like an hour between the time a ball was put into play. I mean, you can't do that. It's just like they've got the it all purest garbage. It's crap. Baseball's always been, they have made changes. You used to be able to throw a ball and hit the guy and he was out. Come that's on. true. Well, that's true. That's true. And, you know, so baseball makes changes. One of the areas where you have seen some experimentation is the minor leagues and the independent league teams. Now, the owner of our radio station, John Katzmatidis, coincidentally, he just bought an independent league baseball team in Staten Island in our Good. listening area. Good. Any advice to, uh, you know, Pete Davidson's an owner of this team, Colin Jost, the, the, the ex-wife of The Rock. So it, really, a lot of New York are, are really looking forward to seeing this work. Any advice on how to uh, do something different in one of these independent league teams that could get really get people talking and really get people to the ballpark? Well, again, the minor leagues have always depended on promotions. 
You have to get people to the ballpark, and you do promotions. So um, now this was before the age of the Internet more. I mean, you have to uh, – minor leagues are fun. Uh, I had the greatest time in the minor – when I was doing Bull Durham, and I used to go to minor league games all the time. It's great. They're great. They're affordable. The uh, the fans are terrific, and you see ball players you're going to see you know coming through. Uh, now is this a Staten Island Yankees? Is that the team it, they it was. It's going to play in their ballpark, and uh, the Yankees are, I believe, a part owner of the team. But it's going to be the uh, the name of the team is the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Okay, so I wish them luck. Um, yeah, no, it's fun baseball, fun, but you got to pick up the pace. Fair enough. Fair you enough. have to pick up the pace, uh, but it's it's still. You know, uh, but I, but again, you know, it's a different narrative. I love the baseball narrative because it starts. It's like a great novel. The season it starts in April and it takes many twists and turns, and so many changes happen over the course of a season. You lose players, you add players, and everything. So I just love the whole narrative. Well, again, course, and to, you know, to go back to the New York Mets, I, I don't think you've seen a team be in first place for that much of the season and then not even finish the, the season with a winning record. It, it's really quite extraordinary the kind of narrative, the twists and turns that you're talking about. I could talk with you about baseball all night. Very quickly, last time. We spoke. It was right after the Super Bowl. How are you seeing the uh, football playoff picture play? Uh, you know, play out at this point. Chiefs, Packers, Tampa Bay. Well, where do you see it going? It's amazing how many teams are eight and six in the AFC. It's true. Um, I, I, you know, I hate to be a front runner with gun to my head right now. I would say Packers and Chiefs. Um, but that could change. I mean, again, what if Mahomes goes down? It just. What if Rodgers goes down? The I, I I mean they look but again it it changes so frequently you know in the next couple of games and and of course now you're dealing with another uh, uh, variable of COVID so that's uh, so that's 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 another thing too by the way any Met fan should want the DH you got you got Robinson Cano still on this team for another year you, you go you you want you want the DH. Well, we also have Dominic some... Smith and Robinson Cano and Alonzo. You want the deal. Uh, we also have some good hitting pitchers. I mean, uh, uh, it's uh, oh, stop. Fair enough. Okay. Stop. Right. Well, again, we're going to have to. I'm going to have to have you on for a whole hour. Are you pitching? Are you going to pitch to any one of those guys? For a guy who's a pro player on the bench, give me a break. I'm going to have you on for a whole hour, and we'll we'll, we'll have a fleshed-out discussion as we get closer to opening day about the demise of uh, of pinch-hitting and National League brand of ball. Uh, Arliss, I was a big fan of that show. That was really, I think, HBO's first show. I think it was before The Sopranos, before uh, Boardwalk Empire. No, no. No, it, it was it was before Boardwalk and Sopranos, but remember they had had uh, Dream On, they had had the Larry oh, Sanders show. Oh, that's right, I had they forgotten had, about uh, Larry Sanders and uh, and and Dream On. But uh, well, anyway, I was a big fan. I used to like the. I thought it was cleverly written. I thought you were great on it. I used to like the cameos from professional athletes. There's always been talk of an Arliss reboot, and now with the business of sports bigger than ever, it would seem now sort of the perfect time for an Arliss reboot. What are the chances of that happening? Not as good as I would like. Uh, HBO, you know, it, it, you know, it's amazing about the Arliss show is we went up in the ratings for seven consecutive seasons, which most shows never do. Very few shows do that, uh, even on HBO, maybe Game of Thrones. I don't even know if The Sopranos went up for seven consecutive seasons, but we did. However, we were never considered the 
you know, a critic's hip show. So we were always treated as the stepchild there at HBO. And the, all the people who did support the show and kept it alive and put it on the first place are no longer there at HBO. And the uh, powers that be right now, at least they have been recently, uh, are not big fans of it. And, but the other problem is that they refuse to let any intellectual property go so that other people can make it. So that's up against mm. the wall frustration. Um, you know, I was very proud of the show. We, we, we told funny stories, good stuff. And we also told uh, social stories that people now tell me, you know, hey, you were so ahead of your time talking about Alzheimer's and gay athletes and transgender and steroids and, and uh, Alzheimer's. You know, so uh, I go, I'd rather be of my time and have Seinfeld money. But... Um, <laughs> But no, uh, no, especially now, nowadays, sports is so much bigger than it was then. So much bigger. Uh, no, I think it would be a, a huge hit now because, uh, you know, sports has gone from a multi-million dollar industry to a multi-billion dollar uh, industry. And people can still watch if they haven't seen our list. I think the episodes are all available on demand on HBO Max. Is that right, Robert? That is correct. Yeah, that no, is correct. It's, uh, it's a great show. Well, people well, should I check need- it out. 80 episodes, and, and the show gets better, and the show grows and gets uh, richer and better as we get along, do, do you, which I was very proud of. Do you miss doing radio on a daily basis? I'll tell you what I used to enjoy about your show is uh, because you, you didn't take calls. I guess maybe it forced you to do some of these long-form interviews, and you did this terrific interview with uh, Dan Luria and Ju- Judith Light uh, where you uh, talked just about the show Lombardi, and I never thought I'd be as riveted to an hour of radio about a play that I didn't that I had never seen as I was when you did this long form interview. You have a real talent for storytelling and for interviewing, which a lot of people that come from acting don't necessarily do. Do you you miss doing radio regularly? Uh, I liked doing it. It was challenging, like you said, because of the uh, the situation with no clearances, not being alive. Uh, Now, Dan Lurie is a very dear friend of mine. So uh, it was easy. I like doing interviews. I'm, I'm inquisitive by nature. I, I like to probe. I look at an angle and a point of view, and I, I, I want something that will give me a – I like craft. I like to understand how craft works, how people who work really hard. Um, it's like I see these interviews, post-game interviews, and they'll say, hey, you got the big hit. How do you feel? Well, how do you expect the guy to feel? Give me something better than that. You know, you were going up to the plate. What were you looking for? What was your mindset when you had to play? What, how do you get to that? You know, give me something specific. You know, just don't say, hey, how does it feel? Right. Yeah, what, what do you think it's going to say? Feels awful? Come on. Um, you know, so I'm interested in craft. I'm interested in, uh, you know, in the mental part of the game a lot. When I was talking to, when I was doing Arliss, uh, the one thing I learned about the athletes, having about 200 athletes on and talking with them, is that when it, with rare exceptions, the talent level between all these guys is about a space between your forefinger and your thumb if you push them together. With rare exceptions, it's about an inch apart. Rare exceptions. What separates them from being successful to being very successful to being Hall of Fame is their mental approach to the game. Mm. How are they mentally prepared? Have they done their homework? Have they done everything? How are you mentally prepared for when the craziest situation arises, and it will arise at some point? How are you mentally prepared to deal with it? And how do you respond? That's why the um, I've always had this crack, uh, uh, this 
whole idea that Don Denkinger cost the St. Louis Cardinals the World Series may be the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm. It's like he blew a call. He blew a call at first base in game six. In game six. So he blew a call at the first. Okay, so the guy's off first base. What, that isn't the first time in a game sure. all year that these guys had a guy at first base with a tying run on and you're still leading? Come on. Yeah. Three outs and you win. <laughs> you know, same thing with Buckner. What people forget is it's game six. Well, you know the fans always need it. The fans always need a scapegoat, especially Red Sox fans. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, Robert, I, I got to let you go, but I really, really quick. I, speaking of radio, I was listening a week or two ago to uh, Ben Affleck on uh, on another radio show, and he again said something that I've heard him say before, which is that the low point in his career was when he was so uncool that he was literally a punchline in in your act. Now, how does it feel that one of the the biggest stars in the world that you get to him so much that making a joke about him, he finds the low point of his of his career. Does that make you feel like you're doing a good job or does that make you feel bad? What's the story there? Well, well, no, no, it was part of it. By the way, what he's referring to is a uh, it was it was a, it was a joke. Uh, I was doing a history lecture for HBO. It was a comedy history thing called uh, Assume the Position. The position. I used to love that. I, I was great. It was, it was direct, very it was educational. Yeah, it was directed by D.H. Pennybaker, Oscar winner. It was nominated for a Writers Guild Award. And in the show, I'm talking about, um, I was giving history to a real NYU students. And the line and that came up and I was talking about, uh, I was doing a theory about the man who shot Liberty Valance directed by John Ford. And I said, John Ford has four Academy Awards. But I go, the Academy Awards aren't the be-all and end-all of anything. I said, Ben Affleck's got an Oscar, for God's sake. <laughs> now, this is right after Geely. So it was an easy shot. Okay, sure. be that as it may. But, but, the crowd exploded. But Ben Affleck has incredibly thin skin about this thing. He said, he said, I, understand, I didn't hear this interview, but he said, I, I, I was punching down. I go, and I turn to my wife, I go, in what world would Robert Wall ever punch <laughs> would be punching down on Ben Affleck? What world would that be? I go, but I, 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 I he was... Oh, boy. I mean, it's like he got paid more for Geely than I probably have made my entire career. So, I mean, it's like, uh, what? Are you really? Yeah, the joke's really? on you. That's, the joke's that's on your you. Low that's your low point that you made a bad movie and you got paid millions of dollars? I think most of America would say that's not such a – you can take a joke. I mean, he's gone on to do great things. He is an excellent director. He's an award-winning director. Right. If you, if gotten you, big, you know, it's like, if but you, I mean, really? If, if you made a joke about me, people would respond, who? Right? At least people knew the, uh, knew the reference. Uh, Robert Walsh. But, I mean, but, you know, come on. Yeah, come on. Uh, it is always a treat talking with you. It's always fun, and uh, you always give us a lot to think about. Maybe we can chat again after the Super Bowl this year. Something tells me uh, you won't be shy about offering your analysis uh, for whoever ends up in the big game. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Robert Wall, you can check out Arliss on HBO On Demand or HBO Max, whatever it's called these days. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. We waited all.
Brian Adams singing Christmas time. I'll take your calls in just a minute. Uh, meantime, I want to encourage you to try Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. It is a gentle daily cleanse endorsed by no less an authority than Joe from Ronkonkoma. Would Joe from Ronkonkoma mislead you? I doubt it. Now, uh, what does it do? It gives you a ton of energy without caffeine. It also gets all of the garbage that's floating around inside your gut out of your system. Constipated, it'll help you out. But unlike uh, laxatives or other things, it's not loaded with chemicals. It's all natural, no GMOs. GetTheTea.com. Use the promo code FRANK. There's also a ton of other great supplements on there. And if you go to GetTheTea.com, order vitamins, order anything else that they sell on there. If you use the promo code FRANK, you'll get to enjoy free shipping anywhere in the United States. Don't miss out. Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. Promo code FRANK. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a sad story. And you know what? I am surprised that this hasn't gotten more attention in the last day or so because this is a story I found quite interesting, but I don't really see it on cable news. I haven't heard about it in any of the radio newscasts. And I, I mean, it's not exactly top page news. I'm going to bring this to your attention and then invite you to comment on it. So far, 4 million people and counting have signed a petition calling for a reduced prison sentence for Rogel Lazaro Aguilera Medeiros. That is the name of a semi-truck driver behind a deadly 28-car pileup in Colorado in April of 2019. The truck slammed into a group of cars that were backed up in traffic on a stretch of Interstate 70 along the western edge of Denver, setting off a large fire and killing four people between the ages of 24 and 69. Aguilera Maderos is a Cuban immigrant and Texas resident who was 23 years old at the time and survived the catastrophic crash with only minor injuries. Now, Aguilera Maderos has said that he lost control of the truck after its brakes failed and that he tried to pull over to the shoulder to avoid stopped traffic. But another semi had already stopped there. The crash happened as he passed one of the state's runaway truck ramps. So as Colorado Public Radio reported back at the time, a jury found Aguilera Maderos guilty in October of vehicular homicide and 23 other charges, including six counts of first-degree assault, 10 counts of attempt to commit assault in the first degree, two counts of vehicular assault, one count of reckless driving, and four counts 
of careless driving. I'm not exactly sure, and I don't pretend to be an expert when it comes to either driving or the law, but I'm not really sure what the difference is between reckless driving and careless driving. It would seem to me it's sort of redundant, but two separate charges. He was sentenced last week to the minimum available on all counts to be served consecutively. You know what that sentence adds up to? 110 years. Bruce Jones, the district judge in the case, said that he didn't believe Aguilera Medeiros deserved life in prison, but that Colorado law requires sentences for each count to be served consecutively instead of concurrently. This is what the judge said. Judge said, if I had the discretion, it would not be my sentence. The decision has sparked outrage over Colorado's minimum sentencing laws, as well as calls for Aguilera Medeiros' punishment to be reduced. Now, millions of people have signed a petition asking the state to reduce its sentence. A Change.org petition asked the governor there, Jared Paulus, to commute his sentence or grant him clemency. It's already got more than 4.3 million signatures. Now, this is someone who has no criminal history, He passed all of his drug and alcohol tests. He complied with every single request by case investigators and the courts. He took full responsibilities for his actions. He apologized to the victim's families. At least one of those, by the way, at least one of those victim's family members said it wouldn't have given him a lifetime sentence. Now, the petition also says that the trucking company he worked for should be held accountable as it's had several mechanical violations since 2017. When asked about the push to reduce his sentence, a spokesperson for Polis told NPR that the governor's office is aware of the issue. Now, my question for you is, do you agree? Do you agree with the people signing this petition, the 4.3 million Americans, is 110 years too much of a prison sentence for a truck driver that may have or probably screwed up and killed people. Or, hey, if that's one of your loved ones that's dead, do you say, hey, 110 years is not enough time? 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the story. I'm going to give you my take and tell you why I think this is a story we should all be focusing on. Um, A civil rights group, a newspaper, and a cohort of truckers are also speaking up. So other efforts are underway to draw attention to this case and to try and shorten his sentence. A whole bunch of truckers are now saying on social media they will boycott Colorado during their routes. The national president of the League of United Latin American Citizens told ABC 13 – no affiliation with this radio station, that the civil rights organization sent a letter to Paulus on Aguilera Medeiros' behalf asking for a pardon or a reduced sentence. The Denver Post published an editorial on Wednesday asking the governor to commute the sentence and urging lawmakers to reform the state's sentencing laws. And that, my friends, is where I come down. I have always, always always been opposed to mandatory minimum sentences. I have spoken to too many people over the years that have seen their loved ones 
locked away for decades, sometimes for the rest of their life, because of mandatory minimum sentences. Let's let judges be judges. Let's allow judges to have some discretion. And let's allow judges to come up with sentences that fit the crime. I don't think this young man should get 110 years in prison for a mistake. And by the way, it's a mistake that his employer, in all likelihood, made through ignoring repeated mechanical violations. I say give him five years, give him 10 years. That's enough to rehabilitate him. That's enough to send a message to other truck drivers about reckless or careless driving. And then you find this company that that clearly didn't make the proper changes in light of their repeated mechanical violations. You find them like crazy. Shut them down if you need to. But I think to sentence a 23-year-old to 110 years in prison for an accident, even a deadly accident, to me... It's too much. Too much. Let me know what you think. 1-800-848-9222-1234567. Open lines. 1-800-848-WABC if you want to be heard on that subject. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Stephen Kent. Stephen Kent is a uh, political commentator and a podcaster who's got an interesting book called How the Force Can Fix the World. And in the 3 o'clock hour. It was very interesting to hear, um, uh, to read, rather, how President Nixon's lawyer is currently filing, his defense lawyer from 47 years ago, is currently filing a criminal, an official complaint against the Justice Department lawyers who were the Watergate prosecutors. Now, what is that, what good is that going to do 50 years later? I'll ask him. But I'd like to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's begin with Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I wanted to comment on um, the 23-year-old driver. I think you're right. Um, Maybe he should get 10 years at the most. Because whoever owns that trucking company, they weren't maintaining their vehicles properly. And, I, you know, they need to be held liable for that. But they, how could you sentence a 23-year-old guy to 110 years in jail? I mean, it's insanity, really. I don't think you can. I mean, and, and again, this, yeah. is, this is why I don't think mandatory minimum sentences make a lot of sense. Mandatory minimum yeah. sentences, they have the best of intentions. But what is it they say? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think this is a, uh, a disaster. Right. And I hope, one, the governor acts in the case of this, this young man. Mm-hmm. And two, I hope the legislature does away with these mandatory minimum sentences. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for the call, Carol. Uh, appreciate it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. If you want to comment, you can also find me on Twitter at, at uh, Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. And on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. A little bit later, we will read your emails. So if you have anything interesting to email me, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's uh, frank.morano at wabc.com. 
Um, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. Uh, by the way, I know a couple of you said that uh, during my discussion with Robert Wall, the stream crapped out for a bit, and uh, we are working on resolving those issues. So if you missed any portion of that interview, we are uploading the podcast to WABCRadio.com. So you can go get it through WABCRadio.com or through FMWABC.com if you want to hear our whole discussion in which we discussed a wide variety of issues ranging from sports to Ben Affleck to uh, you name it. So uh, I thought it was a good interview. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on that. Um, And uh, I'll be with you until 5 o'clock. When you get to hear the WABC early news, I'm seeing warming up in the bullpen. Our own Deb Valentine is here dark and early to, uh, you know, make sure she can give you all the news that's fit to listen to. And she'll be ably assisted by Frank Diaz, who's also uh, warming up in the bullpen to bring you some business news as well. And a little bit later, I have... um, have to tell you about a pretty amusing day that I had, which could have very easily have been a pretty tragic day, a typical Frank Morano day in a nutshell. I'll tell you about that a uh, a little bit later. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Stephen Kent, author of the book, How the Force Can Fix the World, joining me in just a few minutes. Uh, lessons on life, liberty, and happiness from a galaxy far far away. I've enjoyed this book. I just picked it up today and um, I've been enjoying it so far. It's pretty It's pretty interesting. Let me say hello to Kim in South Carolina. Hello, Kim. Hi. How are you? Um, okay, I'm good. I'm first time on the radio ever. Oh, well, well, we have to give you our first time caller fanfare, uh, Kim. Uh, I, I'm so glad that you chose to make your first time with me. Welcome aboard. Hopefully you'll make it a habit. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I'm driving a truck right now, and I've been driving for 14 years, and I come from corporate America in New York City, actually, in the computer industry. Um, But that driver, he had an intrastate license, so he was only licensed to drive in the state of Texas. Interesting. Okay. So um, he, well, I mean, I'm not saying the guy shouldn't go to prison, uh, but I do think a 110 year prison sentence is a little excessive. They they should change the law. But the way people talk is he was innocent. And the reason why his brakes didn't work was because when he was going down that hill, he was riding on his brakes. And if you ride on your brakes, they get too hot and they don't work after a while. Yeah. So your point is, as an expert, clearly, is that uh, this guy is not necessarily as innocent as he's cracked up to be. Yes. Okay. Well, look, I can buy that, Kim, and I'll defer to your expertise. I'm not saying, again, sounds like he probably made a number of mistakes here and you just cited two of them. I'm not saying he shouldn't go to prison, but at 23 years old to essentially have to spend the rest of your life in prison when there was no drugs involved, no alcohol involved, no uh, no effort that this was intentional uh, on his part. I think that's way extreme. I I can agree with that. I can agree with that, but I'm not signing any petition and I'm not signing anything to well i don't go out to colorado anymore anyway i stay basically on the east coast now but um well good i wouldn't boycott like some of the drivers are doing you know they're boycotting refusing 
to go into Colorado. Why do you think so many of your colleagues are taking this to heart if they've got to know the same information that you know? Kim? That's a good question because a lot of a lot of drivers don't know this either. The trucking companies when legally, legally, when you get in that truck, the operation of that truck is the driver's responsibility. And they do not make that clear when drivers start driving because then they would have no drivers driving trucks. That's a great point, you Kim. See what I'm saying? Kim, what made you leave? I'm just curious. Um, what made you uh, leave okay. I, the world of no, corporate? I didn't leave. No, no, I didn't leave. I um, took the buyout. My company got sold to another company, and then they offered all the executives a buyout. So I took the buyout. The buyout was great. And... Um, then I worked in our restaurant. We have a restaurant about 40 miles north of the Bronx. And I worked there for a couple of years. And I said, you know what? I was hauling our horses from New York down to West Palm Beach. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out and get my CDL. Hmm. And I went out and I got it, not realizing myself what it was all about. And I- now I'm hauling chemicals. I'm hauling chemicals from Gulfport, Mississippi, all the way up north, maybe to Massachusetts sometimes, Pennsylvania sometimes. And then I've been hauling milk down south. Wonderful. Well, keep us on the radio as you're uh, hauling up and down the East Coast yep. there, Kim. Thank you. All right. Super. Call Take again. Care. Call again. 800-848-WABC. I like that. She's an expert in what we're talking about. She sounds – She her radio was off, which I like. It's a testament to Ryan. We had to dock Ryan's pay yesterday. And, uh, you know, she sounds good. She sounds hip. She sounds with it. She doesn't sound drunk. I like that caller. Mike is in the Bronx. Hello, Mike. Hello, uh, Frank. Regarding the sentence for the driver, I think that was excessive given there was no intent. However, the whole idea of mandatory minimum sentences, I I think they may be needed to protect from the very radical judges who would would, uh, let violent criminals off or or criminals who who did serious serious acts would let them off with um, very light sentences. So – well, that's precisely the rationale for mandatory minimum sentences. In my view, um, too often, especially at the federal level, sentences are disproportionate to the severity of the offense. I think you're seeing that with Colorado. They should have at the very least allow him to serve the sentences concurrent rather than consecutive. The focus on certain kinds of offenses has had a very major impact and – As far as your point, and I get what your point is, and that's exactly why we have mandatory minimums federally and in states like Colorado. I don't like that it removes discretion from judges because then why do we elect judges? I mean, we should be looking for judges that are going to mete out justice properly. Otherwise, if we're just going to have judges essentially enter in a mathematical equation, we can just elect a computer as a judge. I mean, it almost goes uh, totally different, but it almost goes hand in hand with what I was talking with uh, Robert Wall about with umpires. I mean, if judges, all you have to do once someone's convicted is enter in, uh, this is the formula that this spits out. Here you go. We could have just robot judges. I'm sure the robot judges would uh, save us all a lot of money on health care and pensions. Let's let our judges be judges and then let's take judicial elections seriously. Uh, because now 
with just mandatory minimum sentences, why would you ever care who a criminal court judge is? If it, they're just entering in, if they're just basically paper pushers. And you know who feels that way? Retired judges. Federally, statewide, I speak with a lot of judges. I have friends that are judges, both retired and, and uh, active. And to a person, they have all lamented the fact that they don't let you be judges anymore. Look, you see that with bail reform in New York. Even if a judge knows that a criminal defendant is likely to not show up for a court hearing or be a threat to someone else, they're not allowed to ask for bail, except in the very most extreme cases. I think that's a shame. Let judges be judges. 800-848-WABC, 1-800-848-9222. Raul is in the Bronx. Hello, Raul. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Good. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a New York City Uber driver, TLC driver. And, uh, you know, you got to do a walk around and check your vehicle, make sure everything's in, in order. Uh, if he didn't do that, that can get used against him. The fact that he was driving out of state, if that's true, uh, that's a big that's a big problem. That's going to, you know, he's probably going to get more time for that. 110 years is just ridiculous. Um, and a lot of these companies, sometimes, you know, they... They, they they cut back on uh, on the proper repairs because they want to save money. They do it. They do it with airlines. Oh yeah. You know and. Oh, yeah. You're exactly right. You're exactly right, Raul. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that this young man shouldn't be punished. I think he probably should. It sounds like he made a number of errors, and these errors may have cost four people their lives. But uh, to have him serve a a life sentence in prison, to me, it's it's way excessive, way excessive. The the other drivers that are boycotting uh, uh, Colorado, it, it makes total sense because it can happen to them. They're yeah. doing the right thing. Yeah. Who wants to be in Colorado if you're going to get 110 years if there's an accident that's not your fault? Right. Well, maybe. Uh, they- it, yeah, exactly. I mean, not to mention the 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 thin air, which makes the baseball travel farther. Uh, Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Listen, uh, I'm a truck driver, too. And uh, let me tell you something. The kid's 22 years old. He, that he's only He's been driving less than a year. The kid, the kid doesn't even, he's inexperienced. Any, any brand new truck driver has made a lot of mistakes. And they just got lucky that they, they didn't have a, a, a horrible mistake like this kid had. Uh, that's, that's the reason why now they want to change the, the law in New York or whatever. They want to make the, that the 18 year olds can get their licenses. That's why it's a bad idea. You, you gotta, you have to know what you're doing. You gotta train and, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be 22, 22, you get your license at 21. He he wasn't even driving that long. He doesn't know he doesn't know enough. You can't expect the kid to be an expert. And I don't know. That that's my that's my yeah. I, I, look, I, I agree. I, although I agree with everything that, that that woman was saying earlier, the truck driver. I I agree 100 percent with everything she said. She's 100 percent right. But you got to take into account the kid is not is, is driving less than a year. He doesn't. He doesn't know enough. There's a lot of mistakes. You you learn by your mistakes, and unfortunately for him, he made a really, really bad one. No doubt. So I mean, you're saying it's unfair to judge somebody that's been driving for less than a year uh, by the same standard as a truck driver, for instance, who's been driving for 15 or 20 years. Absolutely. It's it's a totally different thing. And anybody that knows what I'm talking about, 
knows what I'm talking about. Great points. You know I mean? Great points all, Chris. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the perspective and you listening. Look, uh, so far, it sounds like everybody is on the same page in terms of what should happen to this young man. So far, I'm yet to hear a person that says he should go to prison for 110 years. The one difference in terms of the position I've stated compared to where at least one caller is, is the question of mandatory minimums. I think we need to do away with mandatory minimums and let judges be judges. The one person said, well, if we do that, you got to be careful because a lot of these judges are just going to be crazy and, and met out crazy sentences. You know, I've used that term twice now in this discussion, met out. Is the proper term... And I'm talking about the word M-E-T-E. Is the proper term met out or meet out? Is it it's met out or meet out? I, I always said met out, but for some reason I'm pausing. I mean, I don't know why I care. I mispronounce words all the time, sometimes intentionally. But you know what the difference is? Is when I'm mispronouncing a word intentionally versus unintentionally I don't know. I feel a little bit inferior. Uh, Molly, you have a ruling on met out versus meet out? Come on in. Yeah. You've been saying it wrong. It, so what is it? Meet out. It's meet out. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So meet out. Meet out. You have to wonder what, about somebody that's uh, using a word that he has no confidence in the pronunciation of. Meet out. Meet out, not met out. Met out, Justice. Well, did I, didn't I say meet out to start or no? I said met out to start. I think you said met out. I said it met out. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. You what'd, you get, what'd you get in your SATs? Uh, 1390. 1390. Wow. Which goes to show you how <laughs> how ineffective the SAT is in terms of measuring what people actually know. All right. 750 verbal, by the way. But you know what? They don't ask pronunciations on the verbal portion of the SAT. You know what the, the SAT is? You read a paragraph, and then you, they ask you questions about the paragraph you just read, and then they have analogies. Like, um, liberty is to tyranny as, uh, or, uh, as blank is to blank, and then you have to fill in the blank. There's no pronunciations. So I could have answered 30 questions about meet out or met out, and then I would have still got that 750 verbal. So there you have it. Hey, we're going to talk with a guy that's um, – if his book is in any indication and his podcast is in any indication, has probably done very well on his, on his boards. Uh, that is Stephen Kent, How the Force Can Fix the World. We're going to talk Star Wars, aliens, and a whole lot more. Still to come, we'll talk Watergate. we got the best and worst of your email messages coming up as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight, a show proudly that celebrates the tradition of Star Wars and science fiction in general. So I, I, you know, I listen to a lot of radio, and uh, I stumbled upon a radio interview last week, 
where the uh, commentator was interviewing someone, and they're talking all about Star Wars. And it was on a political channel as well. I said, wait a minute, this guy knows a thing or two about Star Wars. I said, well, let me look this guy up. Sure enough, I look him up. He's got a podcast, and he actually makes a lot of sense on the podcast. It's pretty entertaining. There's two podcasts. And I am very, very pleased to welcome the author of the book, How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Stephen Kent, political commentator, podcaster, and author. Thanks so much for staying up late with us. Thank you. Good morning. I like that song you're playing. They should uh, they should put that in the movie. Exactly, exactly. That and the uh, Bill Murray rendition of uh, of the Star Wars Cantina song. If there's <laughs> if there's an episode ten, I do hope that that will uh, that will make the cut. Hey, uh, since you're something of a Star Wars expert, Stephen, let me begin with this. Since we're in the run up to the holiday season here, what's generally considered a one of the great disasters of all time is the Star Wars holiday special i've never seen it it's actually pretty tough to to get on dvd or it's not available on netflix or anywhere it, have you seen the star wars holiday special and is it as bad as everyone says it is it is as bad as everyone says it is and it is something that i have never been able to make it more than halfway through unless i've had a little bit of an edible <laughs> to actually get me to settle down uh, and watch that movie. I mean, it is seriously something that you would struggle to do sober. Um, wow. So <laughs> All right. take, take that for take that for what it will. So Star Wars fans in our audience looking something to do, if looking for something they're do to do if they're staying home because of the Omicron variant, skip the holiday special. <laughs> skip the holiday special, or once the kids have gone to bed, uh, it may get a little bit crazy and uh, <laughs> drift into a galaxy far, far away. Okay, that's good advice. Now, um, one of the things that I'm a Star Wars fan, but one of the things that I've always been fascinated about when it comes to Star Wars and the Star Wars films is that whenever a new Star Wars film comes out, it seems like the fans, by and large, they go to see it five times, but they hate the movie, and they'll tell you what's wrong with every scene. Every movie that yeah. comes out, all I hear from the fans is how terrible it is, and yet they're waiting in line to see it a third and fourth time. For your money, Stephen, what's your favorite out of all the Star Wars films, and what is your least favorite out of all the Star Wars films? Great question. Yeah, so my favorite of all the Star Wars films remains Return of the Jedi, so 1983, the redemption story at the end of the original trilogy. Uh, I don't really know exactly what I love about it, besides that it's it's that you know perfect ending. It's that Darth Vader coming back to the light. It might be the green lightsaber that Luke mm. Skywalker wields mm. by the end. It's just a beautiful conclusion. Um, my least favorite had historically always been Episode Two, Attack of the Clones, sort of the most heavily animated and poorly written of the prequel trilogy from 2002. But I gotta say, uh, Attack of the Clones finally got a promotion at the bottom of the barrel after The Rise of Skywalker came out in 2019. So that's Episode Nine, huh. the most recent really? of the trilogy films. Yeah, it, it it was kind of a new low for me, actually. Um, and I, I really disliked that movie. <laughs> but you know, for a Star Wars fan, what I always say is it's my least favorite, not my most hated. I love sure. all Star Wars movies, I, just a varying degree. I'm in the same. I'm in the same boat. All right, 
Um, last question, not related to the political impact of Star Wars and just the fan aspect of Star Wars. Let's say someone has never seen any of the Star Wars films, right? I, I have a, uh, a a young son, and when he's old enough to watch uh, Star Wars, I'm going to show him the, the Star Wars films. What is the right order to watch the Star Wars films in? Is the right order chronological order, meaning the order they were released, or is it an order of the story, episode one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? I think when you're dealing with somebody who is open-minded and excited to start watching Star Wars, you begin at the beginning of the story. Um, so starting with actually episode one and putting them through the motions of Star Wars. But if you're dealing with someone who's kind of skeptical, like who is like really not watched Star Wars and they need kind of to be convinced that these are worth watching, I am actually a big believer in starting with Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Interesting. So d- did you see that one? Frank? I did. I've seen I've seen them all, I believe, um, unless yeah. there's some theatrical animated versions that I haven't seen. It's, I loved it's it. It's a really good introduction because it's a it's a a very very modern star wars movie it gives you the stake of the war between the empire and the rebellion and it introduces you to the stakes of star wars in a very nice sleek modern package but i think it is a little hard to convince some kids of today to sit down and watch a 1977 film like A New Hope, which, you know, is good, but can be a tad boring. I used to fall asleep watching that really? movie. Well, it, you know, yeah, again, I mean, it doesn't, we don't have to necessarily be talking about kids. There might be somebody listening who's a big Star yeah. Wars fan uh, that wants to show the, the series of films to his girlfriend, for instance, and exactly. and, and they'll say, all right, well, you know, you, you show me and I'll, I'll sit through it. Your advice is to go Rogue One and then what? Episode four? Um, New Hope. Yeah. Yeah. So you do Rogue One and that movie leads directly into A New Hope down to the minute that movie chronologically. Absolutely. It's great. And it's a really nice way to get introduced um, through a modern film. And then you're really interested in the stakes of what the heck happens with those Death Star plans. Absolutely. So I think it's I think it's a nice narrative way to begin. All right, so let's talk about where we are on Earth uh, these days. Uh, you're the author of the book, How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Now, I just got my hands on this book today, so I've been reading it today. I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing. But essentially, you offer, you, you offer a roadmap to how Star Wars can help us through the unprecedented and uh, chaos that we're living in now. In, why are we living in an age of chaos, in your view? How? Why are things so screwed up? Well, that is a great question. I, I do feel like every generation always tends to look at the world they live in and go, "Man, things are really things are really going downhill." Kids these days, and you know, world order—it's all changing. But I, I do think we have to be honest and say this has been an incredibly disruptive period to live in, unlike any other generation has dealt with at least since the uh, since the industrial revolution. Um, you know, one of the things that I think has has really caused this has just been that the nature of human existence is to do, is to go through change. Um, there's also an element of not having great powers that we're actively fighting against. 
in the modern world. And so we begin to fight amongst ourselves. I think there was something uniquely uniting about living in the, the period of the Cold War and the post-World War II era. We sort of had this great sense of purpose, this great sense of mission, and a sense of incredible villains that we were against, you know, the Soviet Union, for example. But we're not in that world anymore. And that's when you start to turn inward, you know, maybe be a little bit decadent as a society, and uh, go a little bit too far with your own internal struggles. And that's, you know, our culture wars, that's us against them. Um, I think that that's sort of where we're at right now, but it's also a great opportunity for growth and expansion. I was reading to my daughter just the other day in homeschool about the scientific revolution after the dark ages. Have you ever kind of delved into that transition between the, the Black Plague and then how it entered the Renaissance period? Not not too closely, I have to admit. No, it, it's really interesting. Like I, I was reading it to her just for her, her lessons, and it was exactly like a, a history repeating itself kind of thing, where you read about the Black Plague and how it sort of caps off the Dark Ages, and then because that time in world history was so awful, you enter this period where people were dying for for beauty, and so we enter this period when the plague goes away of exploration, people wanting to travel overseas, Christopher Columbus being like, hey, I want to get out of Europe. This place sucks. I'm going to go find a new world. And it's the struggles that we face as a people that push us towards times of beauty. And I really do look at where we're at right now and I go, oh my gosh, this this year is the most that we've ever had space travel hmm. and space exploration since the time of John F. Kennedy and actually pursuing the moon landing. it's We've never been this hungry before for exploration. And I think that's because of great struggle and things being a little bit awful. It's kind of a roundabout answer to your, to your question, but things are always changing and cycles are a part of human existence. So how can Star Wars save us from the age of chaos in which we're living in? We have political polarization. We have uh, violent wow. crime in uh, a dozen cities in America setting records. We have civil war in other places. We have a lot of international tensions. We have a lot of polarization even among families. Uh, people can't seem to uh, get, get along even on the most mundane subjects. What can Star Wars do for us to help us through the age in which we're living in? Well, the primary lesson of my book is that we all need ways in which we receive the chaos of the world and think about things that we don't like about it. Um, there's a line from episode one, The Phantom Menace, when Anakin Skywalker is preparing to go off with Qui-Gon Jinn to study as a Jedi Knight. And he turns back to his mother, who has encouraged him to go, and he says, you know, I don't want things to change. I'm afraid. And she says to him, you can't stop the change any more than we can stop the sun from setting. And I think about this all the time because she tells him again as he walks away, don't look back. And if you remember that moment in, in episode one, Anakin looks back. <laughs> he walks off a little bit of ways and then he looks back over his shoulder with great sadness. And Anakin Skywalker has a horrible, horrible life. And it's because he was never able to listen to that advice that change happens, it's always going to happen, and you're going to have to learn to deal with it just like that rising sun. 
Um, and he just couldn't do it. And he always tried to control everything that was out of his control. This goes back to lessons from the Greek Stoics. Marcus Aurelius, one of the ancient emperors of Rome, the last great emperor of Rome, he was what you would call a Stoic. And he embraced this idea that to live a good life, you have to learn to deal with things that you cannot change and focus on the things that you can. And I look at the chaos of our world and I see people stressing so much over things that are just completely out of their control. They need to be looking inward and working on themselves, looking in the mirror, not worrying about their friends and how awful they are, or worrying about China rising overseas. Like you should, you know, maybe be aware of that it's happening. But there's nothing you can do to change it, so you certainly shouldn't lose any sleep over it. Well, it's very interesting. Your book, one of the many things that's interesting about it is the beginning. You have two forwards, not just one, uh, written one written by Pete Dominich, who's the publisher of The Federalist and a contributor of Fox News. The other by the former mayor of Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges. Now, uh, Ben Dominich is a conservative. Betsy Hodges mm-hmm. is a progressive. Uh, why did you choose to have these two people write the forward to your book? And what does it say that both a conservative and a progressive could sort of introduce a tome about healing the partisan divide in our country? Because nobody, when you ask them, are you a Star Wars fan, wonders (laughs) what the politics of that person might be uh, when you ask someone whether or not they like Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. I mean, Star Wars is a politically transcendent story that has been around with us for four decades now because it it bridges multiple different age divides. It bridges cultural divides. There are so many people who have stories of watching those movies in the theaters with their parent or grandparent, and it sort of just gives us a cultural medium to understand, like, hey, we all love some of the great tales of our history. It used to be that we all could gather around the fire and talk about the American founding and some of the idols of our own country. It used to be that we all had a shared sense of religion and the Judeo-Christian faith, and we had an understanding of where we come from as a people. And I would like us to try to restore those things, but you could do a lot worse than remembering why we all love Star Wars. And that's because we were all kids once. (laughs) We all used to dream about the stars and about who we could be as people. Star Wars is one of those stories that gives us that. So that's why I thought it was important to ground my book and saying like, hey, like I'm a political guy and politics is important to me. But we need to remember that Star Wars is a story about the things that we share. So I wanted to start that by talking to a really far left Democrat and a conservative Republican uh, about what Star Wars means to them. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, that's great. And I've had a similar bonding experience over Star Trek as well. Now, we have uh, one of our multimedia journalists that works here at the radio station, Frank Diaz. He just showed me, as you were speaking, that he's got a tattoo of a lightsaber on his arm. That's a little yeah. excessive, right? I mean, that's too much. 
<laughs> it's like Roger I Stone mean, getting a tattoo of Nixon on his back. I mean, that's that's excessive. My uh, my my wife was talking. She has a bunch of tattoos herself. She was talking about getting Han Solo's blaster on her thigh, and you know, honestly, I thought that was about the hottest idea I'd ever heard. <laughs> so, you know, to each their own. Fair enough. Well, if things don't work out for you and your wife, I'll give her Frank Diaz's number now. <laughs> Um, it is not unusual to uh, look toward in, in history to look towards works of fiction, works of literature for inspiration and in terms of how to fix real life. I think the best example that I yeah. could think of is the novel Utopia, which spawned the whole utopian socialist movement. Now, as you mentioned, these Star Wars movies have been around for more than 40 years now. Are there any political movements anywhere in the world as far as you're aware of, that have already taken some inspiration from the world of Star Wars in terms of their philosophy or their ideology? That's a, that's a great question. There are not that I know of. There is an actual operating like Jedi church. So I can't remember which country it's in, but it is in I think Europe. it might be the UK. Um, it might be the UK. Okay. Yeah, because some guy started like an actual Jedi church where they practice Jediism as a religion. It has thousands of members. I think it's a little bit derpy, and I'm not sure if it's a thing that anyone's ever taken super seriously. But, you know, as far as politics goes, I really do believe that there's a certain element, not a certain element of the libertarian idea, which is generally okay with social change and sort of live and let live attitudes. I incorporate a lot of what I learned from Star Wars into the reasons I'm a libertarian myself. I'm conservative temperamentally. I don't actually like change like I was talking about with Anakin, but I sort of believe you have to be able to deal with it. And the libertarian idea is part of what has helped me embrace the idea of what you call spontaneous order, that things are just always going to change and fall into place no matter what. You you also um, host a podcast yeah. where you cover some of these issues. It's called Beltway Banthas, uh, in which you mm-hmm. cover the nexus of Star Wars and politics. What about um, some of the more the evil entities in the Star Wars universe? You have Darth Vader and the uh, Empire. You have uh, Emperor Palpatine, uh, Senator Palpatine. You have the uh, the First Order. You have Boba Fett. A lot. You have Jabba the Hutt, uh, who you know seems like he could operate in you know any number of governmental strategies. Do the evil people in Star Wars, Darth Vader, Palpatine, Boba Fett, the others? Do they have an ideology, a political ideology that can, you can ascertain? Do they fit on the traditional right-left political spectrum? They don't, actually. Uh, most Star Wars villains who are particularly like of the authoritarian stripes, so thinking like Darth Vader and Burt Palpatine, these people are utopians. You mentioned the Utopia book earlier. And I think utopianism is really one of the most dangerous ways of thinking that you could ever possibly be as a human being. One thing that keeps me grounded in the reality that things will never be perfect is the fact that I am a Christian. I sort of believe in human decline and and the fact that like human life will always be a little bit messy and disordered as a part of, of life. Like, you know, my bounty, my treasure is going to be in another life and another time and another place, not here on this earth. Utopians are willing to smash eggs to try to make this world perfect, and it will never, ever happen. 
Um, but then there are also sort of political realists in Star Wars. Boba Fett might be a political realist. And then there's also Count Dooku from the prequel trilogy. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. And if I had to peg a libertarian in space, it might be Count Dooku, if you remember that villain yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, no, he was great. Now, um, you, um, you also host a non-Star Wars polit- uh, podcast called Right On with Stephen Kent. And I listened to several episodes. I was very interested. A lot of great stuff there. Uh, probably no episode held my interest more than an episode you did about uh, aliens and extraterrestrials. In your and you know it's almost a year old now, but what has led to the explosion in media coverage on Earth that we're seeing now from mainstream news outlets: New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, CNN, sixty Minutes, CBS News. The list goes on and on. What's led to the media coverage explosion of aliens and extraterrestrials? as far as you could tell? Well, there are a lot of different viewpoints on what it might be. You know, there are some people who look at the explosion in viewpoints as a symptom of of human boredom. There are some people who look at the explosion in stories um, just as sort of a a side effect of the fact that we are highly connected peoples with cameras in our pockets, and we see weird things and then try to make sense of them. But there's also a lot of evidence out there. If you just follow the money, you follow the people who are talking about UFOs and aliens and and creating news stories, that there are people who have financial interests up at the very highest level in trying to get us to to talk about aliens. I personally am someone who believes in extraterrestrials, but it's very unclear to me why we find ourselves wrapped up in these stories sort of in waves. You see it happen in periods of time, and and this is another one of those periods. If we get to a point where extraterrestrials visiting Earth are so open and so visible, similar to how they were in the movie Independence Day, where there's flying saucers over uh, major cities all over the world, or uh, how they were in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, where they're parked outside of the White House, how do you think the world will greet uh, aliens, and how how do you think the world will react? And do you think that extraterrestrials that would be coming here are more likely to be hostile or peaceful? Oh, man, one of the great questions of all time. I I think I am of the mind that generally they would be hostile. Uh, Did you ever have sort of the the romantic idea that they could be here to help us? Well, yeah. I mean, especially if you look at some of the reports of uh, them making certain um, ships, uh, UFOs making certain nuclear uh, equipment dysfunctional, leads me to think maybe maybe that uh, some of these entities are are here to save uh, save us from ourselves. But uh, I guess the jury's still very much one of the one of the really interesting alien movies of of recent history was that film Arrival, starring Amy Adams. Yes, yes. and that movie put an interesting spin on it, which is that in some deep, deep future, aliens were going to need our help to save their civilization, but we were not technologically capable in our modern time of being able to help them. So they were going to come down and give us a new language in order to expand our knowledge of the universe so that we could be better allies to them when they would one day need it. Mm. And I think that that sort of speaks to my general opinion about aliens, which is that the world is guided by self-interest, well. as is the galaxy. So, you know, life forms are always going to do what is best for them, 
whether it to be to pillage our resources and mine our bodies for, <laughs> for information and tech, or if it is to create military allies out of us for their own self-preservation. Hey, um, again, I just don't believe in kumbaya and utopia. So there will always be an element of, you know, we need you for X, Y, or Z. Stephen, I have to end it there. I appreciate the time. I hope we can chat again soon. Oh, this was a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. If you want to check out the book, it's called How the Force Can Fix the World. It's by Stephen Kent. Lessons on life, liberty, and happiness from a galaxy far, far away. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. 77 WABC. Where the action is. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Christmas in Hollis by the great Run DMC, who I've actually met a couple of times. He's a heck of a nice guy and uh, a very, very talented musician, I must say. And uh, that one goes out to all of our festive little elves in Hollis. Meantime, if you are still looking for the perfect gift for someone on your list, consider, particularly if they have energy or digestive issues, getting them Life Change Tea. Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com is a wonderful, wonderful product. I've told you about it. Joe from Ronkonkoma has told you about it. Johnny Russo has told you about it. It is a gentle daily cleanse that tastes great and works to get things moving, if you know what I mean. They say stress can wreak havoc on your digestive system. And if you're feeling stopped up and bloated, that is not healthy, not a good thing. Life Change Tea is all natural and non-GMO. One package will last you an entire month. It's only available by logging on to the website, getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. You can use the promo code FRANK and get yourself some free shipping. It's promo code FRANK. While you're there, you could check out all the other great products they have to offer designed for your optimum health. You want uh, products for your, your immune system? They have those. You want products for your digestive system? You have, they have those. You want uh, vitamins? They have those. Eye health? They have those. Heart health? They have those. Cardiovascular? You name it. They have it all. Just go to getthetea.com and whatever you order, if you use the promo code FRANK, not only will you save some money on shipping if you live in the continental United States, but the good folks over at GetTheTea.com will also know you heard about it on this radio program. So go to the website, GetTheTea.com, promo code FRANK. All right. Well, a lot to get to for the next two hours. I can't believe the show is half over already. It is hard to believe. I just uh, – uh, there's a lot, a lot to get to. I'm going to have to bank some stuff for tomorrow. That's always the danger with three guests. Coming up next hour. We're going to talk with Jeff Shepard. Jeff Shepard was the attorney for President Nixon around the time of Watergate. He's got a new book out, and he's also filed an official complaint against the Watergate prosecutors. Now, what good does this do half a century later? I'm going to ask him. And 
talked to him about a bunch of other things. You know what I was wondering? I was at uh, my my mother in law stayed with us this weekend to spend some time with uh, little Carmine and to give my wife a little bit of a break, and she was very helpful, as you might imagine the mother of nine would be. But my mother in law is evangelical Christian. And, you know, all kids are evangelical Christian. They were raised that way. So we went to an evangelical church on Sunday, and I've been with my wife before. And you know what they call evangelical churches? And maybe you know this if you're evangelical. Maybe if you don't. They call them evangelical free churches. Now, why would you call it that? To me, you read evangelical free, and it sounds like it's a church that's free evangelicals. Makes no sense to me. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Still to come, we'll talk with President Nixon's former attorney Jeff Shepard about the Watergate situation. You might think there's not much new to learn about Watergate. You'd be wrong. Stay tuned and uh, learn what there is to learn. But uh, meantime, Friday, as I mentioned, I uh, Todd Shapiro, the PR specialist, was kind enough to put together a little uh, a little outing in my honor. And we had a bunch of uh, friends of mine, including Mayor Rudy Giuliani, including Curtis Sliwa, including John Katsimatidis, all gather at the Carnegie Club to smoke some cigars. And Curtis didn't smoke a cigar, but he hung out with us. So anyway, people came. People had a good time, and we just about went on with our lives. Now, yesterday, what's today? Today is now officially Tuesday. Oh, Tuesday. I never really could get the hang of Tuesdays. Now, that being said, Monday, I had a very bizarre day in terms of sleep schedule. My wife needed to go on a call for work, so I had to wake up at a different time than I usually wake up to take, you know, take care of our son. I had to get up and record some stuff. My, my schedule was all screwed up. Uh, my our brother-in-law, my brother-in-law was visiting. So, you know, I was up, I was down, I was up. So, and, and then, you know, it's not as if you can flick a switch and fall right to sleep. You know, it, it, it's tough. You know, if you're getting up and you're doing things, you go to sleep and, or you try to go to sleep. It's not as if it happens in sleep. So eventually, I don't know what time it was, but at some point this afternoon, I woke up, thankfully, because the alternative would be quite disappointed to some of you. So anyway, I get this SMS text message. It was sent at 9.04 a.m. I didn't see it until about 12.30 p.m. The text message is from an attorney named Imran, who was at this cigar outing that we had last Friday. You could see I tweeted a photo of myself, Rudy Giuliani, Curtis Lewa, and this gentleman, Imran. And he texts me at 9.04 this morning. This or yesterday morning, technically, this is the words that he texts. Frank, I tested positive yesterday. Rapid test waiting for PCR to confirm 
mild cold-like symptoms, but wanted to give you the heads up. So, okay, he got, he got COVID. He could get it COVID any number of any number of places. Am I right? So, I'm not too worried. But again, I don't really have a lot of time to process this because when you wake up after being asleep in the middle of the day, you wake up to nothing but text messages from people. Right? You get text messages, text messages, text messages, and and so on and so forth. So. Then I get a text message from my friend Lauren, who texts me at 940 this morning, or yesterday morning, 940. She writes, okay, I was officially with too many people with COVID last week. Her daughter, she says her daughter's name, Paisley, claims she has a headache. Matt, that's her husband, has some cold symptoms. Uh, I hate this. We're going to try to find tests. This is at 940. I'm sleeping through all this. If we have, uh, she's coming to my New Year's Eve party on December 30th. If we have it, though, it'll be good by New Year's Eve, LOL. Uh, okay, great. You, you'll be all set. Good luck. And uh, then she says, you know, uh, you know, I, I just took an at home. And then at 1243 p.m., I get the word, oh, no, I'm positive. I have mild cold symptoms. So. You have two people that I was with on Friday who have now tested positive for COVID. And now I'm asking all sorts of questions. Were you vaccinated? Did you get boosted? What's the story? And I still have a, and you know, she said, I texted the mayor and Maria, uh, Mayor Giuliani tested negative and got to go. She, and whatever, she's fine. So now I'm going about my day trying to accomplish things. And I'm having a, a bite to eat lunch or dinner or breakfast, whatever it is, when you have it at uh, 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock. And I'm informing my wife of all this. And you can imagine, as most uh, most mothers of newborns are, she is panicked, panicked, panicked that I might have COVID and give it to our son. So she says, you got to get a test right away. Boy, trying to get a test is tough. So I and meanwhile, I get a text message from somebody here at work. Can you stay until 8 a.m. on Tuesday for this? And meantime, now I'm hoping I can use the patented COVID exposure excuse that people love to use. I'm trying to I'm hopefully going to say, you know, I'm sorry, Doug. I got the COVID exposure. I don't think I can. I don't think I could come in. But it's such a lame thing for anybody to use. But it's especially lame for me because I like to mock the people that use that excuse. So. um. Rachel is looking all over our area for places that uh, are offering COVID COVID testing. Can't get an appointment. Can't get an appointment. Uh, Done testing for the day. Done testing for the day. So she finally finds one place that's around the corner from us, around the corner. And you don't need an appointment to go. She said, listen, go there now. Go now. So now it's about 5 5 p.m. or so. And I go over there. The line at this COVID testing facility is out the door around the corner. It's one, it's a block long, this line. And this is not a neighborhood that is heavy with pedestrian traffic generally. The line is around the block in terms of people waiting for COVID tests. So I'm now in line 
And the woman comes over to me and she hands me a piece of paper with the name of the facility. And it's like an urgent care facility. And she says, all right, you're going to be the last one for the night. And I'm thinking, all right, my luck. I get in just before the, the deadline. I'm going to be the last one. She says, you're going to be the last one for the night. And I'm telling people that are coming in behind me, no, nope, sorry. They said no more COVID tests after me. I'm the last one. So they make very clear that I am the last one, last one. And I told my wife and my brother-in-law when I was, when I was having breakfast slash lunch slash dinner with them. I said, I am sure that I don't have COVID. One, I'm triple vaccinated. I double vaccinated with the booster and I don't feel the least bit sick. I don't have any symptoms, no sniffles, no cough, no sneezing, no loss of taste, no loss of smell, nothing. feel healthier than I have maybe ever. So I said, I'm sure I don't have it. She said, I want you to get tested anyway. I said, well, look, they're doing the COVID testing at work on Wednesday. How about I wait until Wednesday at 10 a.m.? No, no, no. I want you to go now. So I'm in line and they're telling me I'm the last person that's going to be tested for the day. And I'm in this lengthy, lengthy line and people are coming out of this facility after being tested. Guy in front of me says to a person that just comes out, he says, uh, well, how long how long about is it how long is it about from here the guy says 4 or 5 hours 4 or 5 hours now everybody is shocked that that we're going to be waiting in line for 4 or 5 hours now it's 5 p.m. 5 p.m. or 5:30 maybe i can't wait in line for 4 or 5 hours i got to come up with a plan here but i also don't want to abandon this plan to get tested And on top of it all, because, you know, this is me, my phone is now only at 16 percent battery. And my wife says to me, "Okay, good. Use your time to get work done. Catch up on your emails. Catch up on your phone calls. Catch up on your text messages. I'm sure you have a lot of people to get back to. And I said, I only have 16 percent. She said, why did you not charge your phone when you were you were sleeping? Because I didn't know I was going to be leaving the house at five o'clock. All right. So I'm thinking, all right, I'm outside. It's cold. I have to wait four or five hours, possibly. What am I going to do? No phone, no book to read. What, do I just stand here? Then I look to the left, and there's a cigar shop. And it's a cigar shop that I go to. I said, huh, do I go there and purchase a cigar to enjoy this cigar while I'm waiting online? Then I remember this particular cigar shop only takes cash. Look in my wallet. How much cash do I have? Enough for a decent cigar? One dollar. I have one dollar. Not enough for a decent cigar. Bank across the street. Do I go to the bank? Get money from the ATM? What happens to my place in line? Will this lady that's in front of me preserve my place in line? Probably doesn't matter because I'm the last person anyway. So I'm thinking, okay, okay. Bank, cigar shop. Look straight and to the left. Now, it's going to take me a good 45 minutes, at least, to smoke a decent cigar. Do I invest that time in a cigar? Also, do I really want to freak out all these masked people on this COVID line by puffing, you know, on a cigar? Maybe not. Maybe not. Do I have the time to sit in the cigar shop and smoke in the cigar shop? Maybe. Maybe. Now, I don't usually like to smoke that close to a show because I don't want to screw up my voice. Is that a risk worth taking? Maybe. Maybe. So I look to the right. What's to the right? It's a bar and restaurant that's owned by a friend of mine that I've used to go to quite frequently and still frequently order from. It's like a pizzeria, but it's great. 
and they have a bar. I said, hmm, hmm, maybe they've got a charger in that restaurant. Maybe I go to the bar, I'll be able to keep an eye on the line, I charge my phone, I am kind of hungry, maybe I get a little something to eat, I charge my phone, I'll have a charged phone, I'll have a drink or two, maybe a snack, and I'll be able to see what's happening with this line, and I won't be freezing cold. I opt to go that route. So I go into this restaurant, I sit at the bar. Uh, I don't recognize the bartender. I order a drink. He gives me a bourbon. And then all of a sudden, my friend who is the owner, who's not always there because he owns multiple places, he comes and sits next to me. Hey, what are you doing here? We're catching up. I have a second drink. I order food. And now I'm keeping an eye on this line. The line is still around the corner. Everyone that's coming into this restaurant is remarking about how long the restaurant is. Now, I am not thinking that I have anything to worry about because they tell me I'm the last person. As soon as I see that line slim down, I know it's time for me to go over there. And the line is not slimming down. It's long, long, long. So I'm having a good time at this uh, this restaurant and, again, not feeling the least bit sick. And uh, I order uh, order a little, you know, a little snack for dinner, talking to my friend Joe LaRocca, talking to his friends, talking to the bartender. All sorts of people came in that I that I knew and uh, met some other interesting people. Vito Fasella, the incoming borough president of Staten Island. He comes in with his wife. I'm talking to him and his wife. I got to meet, uh, you know, who was in there? Pete Davidson's mother from Saturday Night Live, Pete Davidson. His mother comes in. I'm talking to her. Super nice lady, by the way. And then... I said, all right, well, it looks like that line is starting to slim down. Do I dare? Now my phone is totally dead. They did not have a charger for me at the restaurant. Do I dare see if it's almost my turn? So I walk back over there, and I see all the people currently in line are not the people that were in front of me before. They're totally different people. And I get in line, and the lady in front of me now says, no, I'm sorry, you know, I, they're not doing any more testing. I said, no, they told me I'm the last one, and I hold my piece of paper up. And she said, oh, okay. Maybe they told me I was the last one. I guess maybe you are. So finally, I make my way in, and they said, all right, we need your ID and your and your insurance card. I give it to them. And the guy says, Frank Morano, where were you? We were looking all over the place for you. We were shouting we were looking all over the place. They said he left. He left. No. And then I said, oh, sorry, I had to go move my car. I didn't tell them I went next door for two glasses of bourbon and uh, and some some uh, Italian food. Ne- they said, all right, okay, okay, we'll still we'll still test you. So they they have me test. Do you want the rapid or the PCR? I'll, I get both. I, I I said I'll take both if I can. Now. All they do, the whole place is in an uproar when they find that it's me there because apparently they made a big effort to find me and it was all for naught because I was in, they did not look in the restaurant that I was currently residing in. They were just looking and shouting around on the streets. And what happened was, even though they told me I was the last one, they allowed other people to get online and be tested. They did not keep their word to me. That I was going to be the last one had they done that, had they not allowed new people on that line, I would have seen that that line had become more sparse and I would have been, you know, I would have jetted right over there. So lo and behold, I get the um, I get the PCR test and the uh, rapid test. 
rapid test was uh, was negative and you know takes a day or so to uh, to tell you know to find out what happens with the with the PCR test but i i'm telling you i'm i'm negative i i'm certain of it and uh and the piece, and the rapid test which um this place has a pretty good reputation for accurate rapid tests it found me completely negative as well so on the one hand i was a little disappointed because that means i have to stay for this eight o'clock meeting today uh Additionally, that means, you know, if, had I gotten had I been positive, I wouldn't have had anything to worry about come New Year's Eve Eve because I would have been over it by then. But on the other hand, I was happy that I got to hug and kiss my wife and my son again. Uh, and I was, you know, happy that I'm going to get to go to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with my family and not have to worry about about covid. So still covid free. But let that be a lesson to you that if you're. The last person online, you may not always be the last person online. It's a true story. So everything I just told you is completely true. And unfortunately, what's also true is that we are seeing a level of inflation that we have not seen in over 30 years. The cost of everything is going through the roof. Inflation is skyrocketing. Cost of a meal, through the roof. Cost of ice cream, I mentioned this, $31 for four tiny cups of ice cream, through the roof. Gasoline, forget about it. There's a variety of factors that lead to inflation, but if you want to make some plans for your own long-term financial security, there's only one solution. Gold, silver, and precious metals. So if you've got your money in an existing retirement account, think about rolling it into a gold or a silver IRA. And if you do that, you should do it with legacy precious metals. But when the stock market collapsed in 2008 and Americans lost their retirement, those that were invested in gold saw big gains and avoided the financial carnage. Now, if you're invested in gold, you're going to avoid the carnage of inflation, the inflation tax. Uh, Rudy Giuliani loves to quote Milton Friedman by saying inflation is taxation without legislation. Very true. That's why gold really should be a part of your portfolio. And Legacy is the company that you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. Contact Legacy Precious Metals today. Call 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. Or you can visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. Well, when you talk about watershed moments in the history of America and specifically the history of the American presidency, 
I don't think there are many moments that come, that are more of a game changer than Watergate. Watergate changed the way that we investigate presidents. Watergate changed the public, uh, the trust that the public has in the presidency. Watergate changed the way that uh, presidents interact with Congress, changed the rules of the game when it comes to everything from impeachment to executive privilege. And someone who had a ringside seat for everything that happened at Watergate is still making news on that subject more than a half a century later. I am very, very pleased to be welcoming Jeff Shepard, President Nixon's attorney and the author of the book, The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate and the Plot to Remove the President. Mr. Shepard, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Absolutely, Frank. Thank you for having me on your show. I look forward to our discussion. Uh, I had read your previous book on Watergate, and it was a real eye-opener for me, caused me to think about a lot of things that I hadn't been familiar with. Most people, I think, listening to us right now know the official story. They know that there was a break-in at the Democratic National uh, Convention headquarters, DNC headquarters, at the Watergate Hotel. They know that uh, maybe President Nixon participated in a cover-up of that break-in, and they know that the president resigned in order to avoid impeachment. What don't they know? What's missing from the official story of what history has recorded regarding Watergate? Well, I, I think you hit the three unassailable facts, Frank. There really was a break-in. Uh, uh, we know because they got caught red-handed. Uh, two, there really was a cover-up. Uh, and the question is, who was involved in the cover-up? And and you said there there's proof Nixon was was involved or might have been involved. I I dispute that. I don't think he knew there was a cover-up going on. It was run by his staff. Uh, but when the cover-up failed, and it should have failed, uh, uh, John Dean, who had been running it, the president's lawyer, uh, uh, switched sides and ran to the prosecutors and said, "Well, look, it it really." It wasn't just me. It was a conspiracy. And all these other guys who are senior to me, uh, they were involved. And and that's a very, very difficult position to protect yourself from, because once it's been shown that there was, in fact, a conspiracy, it takes almost no additional proof to add people to it. And, of course, there was a specially recruited group of prosecutors who were brought in with a sole goal of going after Nixon and his people, and they went after the most senior people they could find, and in the end, uh, Nixon resigned. So I I think that what has happened in the intervening 50 years and what is covered in detail in this most recent book, because this is a on the Nixon conspiracy is a 50 year look back of everything we've learned since the Watergate scandal. In my mind, it shows that Nixon was driven from office by a secret cabal of corrupt prosecutors, vindictive judges, and a complacent media. Uh, There's no question that Nixon resigned, but I don't think people could tell you what Nixon had done. Now, I was was the youngest lawyer on his staff. I was on his staff for five years on the domestic council, and I was deputy counsel on on his defense team. And, And, of course, it ended badly, but I'm the one who transcribed the tapes. I'm the one who ran the document rooms. I'm the one who staffed the senior counselors on Watergate issues. So I wasn't making the decisions. <laughs> I was just a kid, Frank. Uh, but well, I was you, in the room. 
you, you say it ended bad, badly, and I know a lot of criminal defense attorneys, and they would consider any any result that resulted in their client not going to prison as having ended pretty well. So maybe don't be so tough uh, well, on yourself. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, but but two dozen members of Nixon's administration did go to prison. He, he I, resigned. I, he was pardoned. But two dozen members of his administration. I mean, they when, when the cover up collapsed, they created and, and recruited a group of a hundred people, mainly selected because they hated Richard Nixon. And they announced at their first press conference they would investigate every allegation of wrongdoing brought against the Nixon administration since it took office. So they launched dozens and dozens of investigations having nothing to do with Watergate. They they looked into Watergate too, but they were they were investigating campaign finance. They were investigating uh, the ITT scandal. They were investigating. Uh, uh, demonstrations, that sort of thing. Uh, it was a, it wasn't a pleasant time, Frank. Uh, and it ended. And, and to me, what they ultimately succeeded in doing was avoiding uh, Nixon's reelection. He had been reelected uh, in in 1972 in the largest electoral landslide in our nation's history. He had won every state in the United States except Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. And they succeeded in voiding that, I think, by misrepresenting facts mm. to the grand jury and facts to the, uh, to the Congress. Uh, and and what, what, what is amazing, if I, if I may, please, uh, uh, they were meeting secretly with the judges. They were suppressing evidence that was helpful to the defense. They were misrepresenting facts to the grand jury. And, and those are appalling things for prosecutors to do. But what's so intriguing, Frank, is they left a paper trail. And I have spent much of the last 15 years uncovering their paper trail. Now, there is an, there is an earlier book, came out in 2015, and that was based on the secret files that the second special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, took with him when he left office. And they didn't surface till 2013. And my my uh, earlier book is based on those documents. But since that book has been published, three more caches of documents have have surfaced that I've uncovered that I'm the first to review, and they form the heart of what's in this book, what's mm. in the Nixon conspiracy. Its major focus is what was done to President Nixon. The earlier book is what was done in prosecuting the members of its staff. But You're I, I and there are links, there are links in the book to all of these documents. I think that's what distinguishes my work from uh, other other people who write because I cite all these documents, and and you you know you can't make the documents go away. They meet secretly with a judge. I think Jaworski met with Judge Sirica in secret about a dozen times. But on at least four occasions, he wrote memos to his file about what they decide. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Jeff Shepard. He's the author of the new book, The Nixon Conspiracy. I want to drill down a little bit more on one of the things that you just referenced, which is the role of the prosecutors and how they may have cheated here. But it's certainly sure. possible that the prosecutors may have cheated 
and President Nixon may have been guilty of participating in a cover-up. The Those that believe President Nixon did participate in the cover-up, they frequently point to the March 21st, 1973 uh, tape of his conversation with John Dean in which he says, get it. Uh, and that's believed to have been a reference to hush money uh, that uh, that was needed to keep people quiet. Do you not believe that that conversation is an indication that President Nixon was okay with the payment of hush money? I, that is correct. I did not believe that. Uh, uh, and, and remember, I'm I'm the one who transcribed that tape. Uh, uh, so John Dean goes in at 10:30 on uh, Wednesday morning, March 21st. And he says uh, uh, there's a cancer growing on the presidency. Uh, it's growing. It's compounding. And you're going to have to make some tough decisions. And you don't know what's been going on. And I'm going to lay it out for you because we're in, we're in real trouble. We're being blackmailed. And he describes Howard Hunt's demand for $120,000. And they spend an hour and a half kicking it around. But uh, you can hear that tape, Frank. And he does. He he says. It, it may cost a million dollars over time if we start paying this guy off. And I know where we could get it, but they conclude, if you listen to the tape, that once you start paying blackmail, there's no end to it. And that that is not what they're going to do and what they conclude. And the only thing they conclude from that meeting is get his attorney general, former attorney general, John Mitchell, down from New York and figure out what we're going to do. But one thing is very clear from that tape, and that is that Nixon didn't know about any specifics of the cover-up until John Dean, who had been running it, went in and told him that morning. Then there's two other tapes, Frank, and, and, and they don't figure quite as prominently, but it's later that afternoon and the next morning. And it's very clear, if you listen to the tape, that Nixon's conclusion is John Dean should submit prepare a written report of what he told the president orally that in, in that hour and a half meeting, and Nixon will use that report to call for a renewed investigation. His answer is, we've got to renew the investigation because there's real wrongdoing here. And nobody else wants to talk about that, but it's John Dean goes to Camp David to prepare that report, realizes he can't do it without incriminating himself, runs to the prosecutors and switch sides. But no, I don't think Nixon concurred in the payment of money. Nixon said we could, like a like a lawyer. Lawyers aren't always the most pleasant people in the world, but he, he, he goes through each of their alternatives. What happens if we pay? And his, his theory on paying is maybe we need to buy time to get out ahead of this story. There is no question Nixon thinks all this stuff is going to come out. It's how we handle it as it comes out. It would be better for us to 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 disclose it than for it to come out piecemeal. Now, you, you, you talk to people. Virtually no one has read those transcripts, and nobody worked like I did on preparing them, on listening to the actual conversation. But my version of what's on those tapes would be backed up if you if you had a semester course and you said, okay, let's go through minute by minute of what's going on in these tapes, you'd come out where I have. 
Well, it's certainly, and I can't wait to read this book. And I had read your uh, previous book on the real Watergate scandal, and it caused me to question many of my own assumptions. And I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out this book as well. As far as the work that you've done, the documents that you've uncovered that indicate that the prosecutors may have cheated here, mm-hmm, can you mm-hmm. get into a little more specificity, uh, specificity yeah. as to what these prosecutors may have done and how the behavior in the Watergate case is different from how federal prosecutors generally behave in criminal investigations. Sure, sure Frank, because that's exactly where we are in this conversation. Uh, uh, Nixon is told that Howard Hunt is demanding money or he's going to uh, spill the beans. Uh, uh, amazingly, that very night, Wednesday night, March 21st at 10 p.m., a payment of money is made to Howard Hunt. It turns out to be the last payment of money. But the prosecutors, when they realized that that's what they could prove, Nixon learned of the demand in a meeting ending at noon. Ten hours later, a payment was made. They were positive what must have happened was that Nixon had told Haldeman off the tape, because it's not on the tape, tell Haldeman to tell Mitchell to tell the guy who's got the money, a gentleman named Fred LaRue, to make the payment. Those events had to occur in that 10-hour window for Nixon to be involved in the payoff. If the payoff occurred before or at a different time, or if any of those five conversations occurred before or a different time, then Nixon couldn't be roped in. And they couldn't prove it, Frank. They couldn't come up with factual evidence that those five events occurred in that 10-hour window, so they lied. And they misrepresented to the grand jury, they misrepresented to the House Judiciary Committee, but they did it in secret. We never knew what the allegations were against President Nixon. And, of course, there was no trial, so they didn't have to bring them forward, and there was no actual impeachment because because Nixon resigned and, and was pardoned. That document that laid out that evidence was nicknamed the Roadmap, and it was said to be properly named as, as, as the Roadmap because it would lead to Nixon's indictment or to his impeachment. The Roadmap was unsealed in response to my court petition at the end of 2018. So for the previous 45 years, nobody knew what the accusations were by the special prosecutors against Richard Nixon. Having now, and it's posted now, you can find it on the National Archives website, their allegations are easily uh, uh, proven to be false, proven to, to lack factual basis. And that's what that's what I do in my book. Uh, I, I, I lay out what the ac- accusations were that we've now discovered and why they are where they're dramatically incorrect. Uh, let me let me add one other thing, because I think your listeners will enjoy this. It's not in the book, but it's a result of the book. I learned after the book was sent off to the publisher that the Department of Justice has a special unit that they created after Watergate, but they created it way, way, way back, whose only job is to look into allegations of misconduct by Department of Justice attorneys, because these attorneys have incredible discretion. And if they decide they don't like you, they can really tie you up in court. 
So this unit, its whole reason for being, it's not the inspector general's unit. It's called the Office of Professional Responsibility, and their only responsibility is to look into allegations of misconduct by Department of Justice lawyers. So I filed a month ago a formal complaint against the Watergate special prosecution lawyers based on everything that I've uncovered that's detailed in my book. And I said, now, don't be saying this is 50 years ago. It's overtaken by events. Well, we can't that, go that's, precisely, that's precisely what I was going to ask you. Why more than a well, half a century later is, is a complaint warranted? Because they took their documents with them when they left office to avoid any knowledge of their wrongdoing. And I'm the one that uncovered since 2013, there have been four caches of documents that I have uncovered that detail their wrongdoing. So they had their own cover-up going, and I've submitted those documents and, and, and my books to the Department of Justice, and I'm waiting to hear, I'm begging them to let me come down and go off and go into the great detail of all of these memos that are they're alluded to, and you, you, they're links on, on my website, uh, to these documents, but to really go through them with Department of Justice career, Department of Justice lawyers whose only responsibility is to sit in judgment of the actions of their colleagues. So when no, I tell you I, I, I can show a dozen meetings, secret meetings with a judge, these guys aren't going to say, well, that's very interesting, Jeff. I, 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 I'd like to go get another drink. I mean, <laughs> these guys, if, if they fulfill their responsibilities, they have to sit there and go with me deep into the weeds, memo by memo of what these guys did. Knowing what you know and seeing the documents that you've seen, do you believe that President Nixon was right to insist upon the firing of the special prosecutor, Elliot Richardson, and everybody else involved in the Saturday Night Massacre? Yes. You have to remember that that uh, uh, when John Dean switched sides, and went to the career prosecutors looking for immunity. The head of the criminal division, uh, 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 Henry Peterson, career head of the criminal division, came to see Nixon and said, you've got to get rid of your top staff because they're, they're going to be accused of, of this wrongdoing. John Dean is, is telling us tales that, we, that we're having trouble believing, but, but this is all going to become public. And he met with them 19 times over the course of the month of April. Uh, uh, and convinced him that he had to fire his two top aides, Bob Haldeman, who was his chief of staff, John Ehrlichman, who was head of domestic affairs, and Nixon did that. Uh, uh, then, and he said, there's going to be a new attorney general, the new attorney general will be Elliot Richardson, and I've given him the authority to appoint a special supervising prosecutor. He, he meant it as a singular item some lawyer who would sit between the attorney general, a politically confirmed Elliot Richardson, and the career head of the criminal division, Henry Peterson, to make the tough decisions on who was going to be indicted. Because if you were indicted, you were ruined. But Richardson gave the whole boat away during confirmation and agreed to the creation of this special force that ended up having 100 people specially recruited, and they took the career guys from the Department of Justice and they fired them, the ones who had broken the case, broken the cover-up, secured the, 
the convictions in the first Watergate trial, the burglary trial, they removed them from the case. And so Nixon is looking at a a, uh, legal pogrom, a hundred strong investigating everything in connection with his administration and exempt from any Department of Justice oversight. So he says to, uh, and his people say to Richardson, this isn't going to work. And Richardson, and the deal was that they would have a compromise on the tapes. The tapes weave in and out of this case forever because the the misnomer occurred. Well, if he's been taping, those conversations will tell us whether he's involved and whether he's guilty or not. Turns out the tapes, and there's 3,600 hours of tapes, the tapes are ambiguous. This is an unfair analogy, but it's like the Bible. You can Mm. selectively quote something from the Bible and prove anything you want. Right, right. Overall, overall, the tapes don't convict Nixon. They show he was doing the right thing. He wanted the investigation back within the Department of Justice. He didn't end when he fired Cox. He didn't end the investigation. He put it back into the criminal division under Henry Peterson's supervision. Now, your your listeners don't know these things because the press never reported them because you were only getting one side. And it was it was hugely anti-Nixon. You know, he was hated by the mainstream press uh, ever since he went after Alger Hiss back in 1948. Uh, and Nixon, Nixon had no alternative press, no talk radio, no podcast, nothing from his point of view. And that's again why I think he was run out of office. You know, I, I'm going to have to have you back for a full hour to go over some of the details. A couple of quick questions I want to drill down upon sure. before we let you go, though. Uh, and if people just tune in, we're talking with Jeff Shepard. His newest book is The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate and the Plot to Remove the President. He's also uh, filed a, a complaint against the Watergate prosecutors for misconduct. And it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. How do you think the Watergate scandal compares, both in terms of the prosecution of it and the media coverage of it, to the subsequent presidential scandals? And you could take your pick of which one you want to look at or which ones you want to look at, but you've had Iran-Contra, you've had Whitewater, you've had the uh, various Trump scandals, and uh, I'm sure a number of others. How do you think what happened to Nixon compared to what happened to uh, Reagan, Clinton, right. Trump, etc. Right. Well, you, you you have to understand, Frank, that with Nixon, he'd just been reelected, and by this huge landslide, and there hadn't been an impeachment effort for the previous hundred years. So there were different standards that that were in effect. It was pretty much agreed that you couldn't indict a sitting president, or at least the law was so unclear you didn't want to try. But that if you were going to impeach him, you needed to prove his personal involvement in a crime that was the equivalent of of, uh, uh, bribery or treason, which was which is mentioned in the Constitution. None of this conspiracy stuff where, you know, you were part of a group and somebody else broke the law. They needed to get Nixon's hand in the cookie jar itself. Mm. And. And the special prosecutor said, we're up to that. 
we can prove that he personally approved this payment of blackmail. Now, they said that in secret. We didn't know it. It turns out they couldn't prove it, but but nobody knew that. But since Nixon, you got this string of people who appear on the talk shows, and particularly John Dean, and they say, uh, you know, whatever happened since is worse than Watergate. And, of course, it usually is worse than Watergate because the actions of subsequent presidents have not been that, that, that blemish-free standard that you would expect. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in a presidency that can be accused of scandal. Even Ben Bradley, the executive editor of The Washington Post, said in a private interview that didn't surface until 2014 that if Nixon hadn't resigned, the Watergate scandal would just be a blip in history. It was no big thing. Mm. And this is this is his principal accuser. This is the, the the guy who runs the newspaper that ran him out of office. For sure. Right. I mean, you know, you you, you just you 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 uh, uh, the other thing that that if you if you go back to the Federalist papers and our founding fathers, <clears throat> they were very worried about allowing the House to impeach the president, to undo an election. And they were fearful it would become hugely political and would become commonplace. And that's what's happened, Frank. Well, uh, that is for sure. And uh, you you could argue that the Clinton impeachment was really payback uh, for what the Democrats had done done to Nixon. Uh, it, it, it was flimsy stuff, uh, but that further cheapened the impeachment idea and this double impeachment of Trump. It, it reaches the point of the absurd. Right. And, and you have to assume are. that if the Republicans win the House in 2022, there'll be some effort to impeach Joe Biden as well. It's become a blatantly political uh, process it's, as well. And it, it, it may not be all of the Republicans, but I promise you there will be Republicans who say, okay, it's our turn. Everything you did to us, us, we're now going to do to you. And the level of civility, I mean, you, 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 you have this just, just today with uh, uh, the Senator from West Virginia, vile things are being said. He's a, he's a he's a, he's a gentleman. And and you don't persuade people by calling them liars and, and traitors and everything. The, the the Congress isn't working like the founding fathers intended. Uh, and people from safe districts on both sides, if you're from a really safe district, there's a temptation to turn into a bomb thrower. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that's and, really what's changed. Now, we're we're now, coming up on the 50th anniversary. You know, it's going to be Watergate, Watergate, Watergate. And people are going to try to tell the newer generations it was all Nixon. Nixon's the gold standard for a classic crook. But if you get into the details and you look at what's surfaced since, that narrative won't fly. The documents uh, that, disprove all those accusations. Whose idea was the Watergate break-in, and what was the motivation? As you point out, Nixon did win in a landslide, won 49 states in 1972. It didn't seem like this race was competitive. What were these burglars looking for? What were they hoping to do with this break-in? 
Well, uh, uh, every campaign before and since uh, investigates and looks into and gathers information on their opponent. Today we call it opposition research. You want to know where he's going to speak, what his policy positions are, who his major supporters are, who's going to come out and endorse. You get that information any way you can. Maybe maybe you're getting information from one of the drivers that here's where they're going the next day. Maybe you got somebody else because you, you're running campaigns off volunteers. And, and there is spying, whether it's legal or illegal, there's information gathering on the opposition all the time. The trouble was when John Dean was assigned responsibility, John Dean's the president's lawyer, he's assigned responsibility for creating a campaign intelligence plan that they mean investigating the other side. He hired this crazy man. Gordon Liddy had the mind of a criminal. Mm. And, and to attract him, John promised him a half a million dollars. Now, those, that was a lot of money in those days. And maybe a million, but you'd have at least a half a million to create this plan. Well, Liddy goes nuts, and he comes in with a proposal that includes ideas for mugging, bugging, kidnapping, and prostitution. And I'm not making those things up. That was part and partial of his plan. Uh, he, he wrote an autobiography. He passed away a couple months ago, but he wrote an autobiography called Will – and he describes it. And he's so proud of his plan. Well, he gets over to the reelection campaign and he starts talking about being promised a half mil or a million dollars. And the staff that's temporarily in charge, they, they put some people over there uh, at campaign headquarters to get the thing organized. Uh, they, 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 the guy that's in charge says to Gordon, well, the only person who has the budget authority to approve expenditures of that level is John Mitchell, and he's still attorney general. He hasn't come over here yet. So they troop over to see John Mitchell in his office of attorney general, and there's four people. It's Gordon Liddy who drafted the plan, and he got the CIA to make charts describing all this stuff. Jeb Magruder, who's nominally in charge of the reelection committee waiting for Mitchell, and John Dean, who has recruited and hired Gordon Liddy, and they describe this plan to John Mitchell. Well, I got to tell you, when the burglars were caught red-handed later, John Dean looks in the mirror and says, you know, I'm a real risk of prosecution. Nobody in the White House knew about the plan to break in. They didn't know about this plan, the specifics of the plan. Nobody's ever accused them of knowing, with the possible exception of John Dean, because he was in the meetings. But what is so interesting is that all got flipped because John Dean wanted immunity. The career prosecutors wouldn't give him immunity because he was so dirty on the cover-up. And the people who gave him immunity was the Senate Irvin Committee. And therefore, he became their hero, and they portrayed him as a whistleblower, as a kid who just stumbled into this terrible situation. But in fact, he hired Liddy, and then he ran the cover-up, and then he switched sides. 
it's yeah, and it's an incredible story, Frank. When you when you really get into it and know it, it re- it really is. If you had to pick, if people are looking for some holiday viewing, there have been so many films about Watergate or that uh, Watergate plays a role in over the years. And most of the films feature Nixon and his band of aides as slightly worse than the devil and uh, his, his top demons. But if you had to pick, what is the most accurate film on the Watergate scandal that you've ever seen? Oh, there is no accurate film. None. Uh, None. That's right. That's what I suspected you'd say. I'm, I'm hard pressed to pick a book other than my book, The Nixon Conspiracy, that fairly presents Watergate. Because they're all, it's, we got these terms that we accept today. And my favorite term of today is the narrative. You know, if, if what you have to report or a fact comes up that doesn't fit in the story you've decided you want to tell, you just, you cut the fact out. And the narrative on Watergate is they were all crooks. I mean, hell, he resigned, and two dozen members of his administration were imprisoned. What do you mean they weren't crooks? But when you get into it, it was the first time in 100 years of hugely politicized prosecutions. This is a textbook example of the criminalization of, of politics. Yeah. They decided who they wanted to who they wanted to to indict, and they went after him and went after him and went after him until they got a story they could tell to a D.C. jury. These guys didn't stand a chance, particularly when you're dealing with what are called thought crimes. You know, if there's a burglary, there's got to be stuff that's stolen. If there's a breaking and entering, there's got to be a broken doorknob or a smashed window. But when you're saying, no, 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 conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and and perjury, what the jury is asked to figure out was what was in your mind when you when you did something, not what you actually did, but what you were thinking about when you did it. And if the jury doesn't like you in the first place or has had two and a half years of negative stories telling all these terrible things you're supposed to have done, it's very easy for them to find evil intent. Mm. And, and, and that's different from factually based stuff. We're going to have to end it there. Mr. Shepard, uh, hopefully in the next week or two, we can uh, have an extended conversation because believe it or not, I have not even scratched the surface of the number of subjects that I want to get into. But I do want to mention if people are interested in seeing some of the documents that you've referenced in this interview and in the book, they can go to the website, your website, shepherdonwatergate.com. That's S-H-E-P-A-R-D on Watergate.com. I'm going to link to that on my uh, Facebook page as well, facebook.com slash yeah, Moreno Fan. That would be super, Frank, because what I, what I do on that website is provide a link to every single one of these documents, and there are dozens and dozens of, of in, absolutely indefensible documents. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to coming back. You ask excellent questions. You drilled right down to the critical items and made me look good 
because you asked the right questions. <laughs> if you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Jeff Shepard, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. Questions, comments, you name it. It's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 77 WABC, All-American. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Those of you that are holding, I will get to you momentarily. For the rest of you, we have four open lines. Jump on board right now, and uh, we'll have plenty of time. No more guests. I know we've had a lot of guests today. We don't normally have three guests. We will have plenty of time to talk next hour. 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. I just got here. I feel like I barely spoke today. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Three terrific guests that I really enjoyed talking to and learning from. Uh, tomorrow, by the way, we have another fan favorite coming on the show, Anson Williams. You might remember him as Potsy in Happy Days. He's going to join me. Very much looking forward to that conversation. And um, I am, we are tentatively scheduled. This is oh, unconfirmed. But we are tentatively scheduled to speak with Bobby Valentine, a former New York Mets manager and the man who should be the mayor of Stamford, Connecticut. That is uh, coming up tomorrow. Also, uh, Scott Shea, the head of Signature Bank and author of the book, uh, Conspiracy You. We will get into a whole bunch of stuff related to some of the conspiracies that have taken hold. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment on anything we've discussed thus far. So my wife and I, we... I have a son, new son, Carmine. He's, I believe, as of yesterday, as of Thursday, four weeks old. And, you know, we, there you go, you could hear him. Rachel suggested we play this whenever the callers complain about something, which is pretty frequent. So I think that's a pretty good idea. So there you hear, very strong cry. So. <laughs> 
this, this the, the complaining cry. Yeah, that's a complaining <laughs> cry. That's it. That's it. So anyway, um, Rachel and I were talking about um, what to do in terms of his baptism. Now, Rachel grew up evangelical Christian, so she came from a tradition that didn't really have babies baptized, right? I come from a Catholic tradition, and so we agreed that we would we would have our child baptized. It's still some debate about whether he's going to be baptized in the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or something else. We're exploring all that. You know, we're, we're working on that. But recently, the subject came up of who to choose as our parents, excuse me, as our child's godparents. And I made a short list, but more so than the personalities involved. And I showed it to her and she gave, weighed in and she had good feedback on, on both the godmothers and the godfathers. And even if we baptize him Catholic, apparently only one of the godparents needs to be Catholic. You have some flexibility there. Now, we more so than the personalities involved, we were talking about the criteria – that should be considered when you pick a godparent for your child. So I thought it might be an interesting question to ask you at 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. When you select a godparent for your child, what factors do you consider? I made a short list here. And they're not all weighed, weighted equally, believe me. One, I think, obviously, look, we're talking about a child's spiritual mentor, presumably. So I think religiosity is a factor. And if, if their abilities as a spiritual mentor is certainly a factor. So you wouldn't want to pick someone, for instance, who is an atheist. At least I don't think. Two, obviously, you want to pick someone that you're you're close to. You're not going to pick uh, somebody that you see once every five years, only at weddings and funerals. What kind of a godfather is that for your for your child? Three, obviously, I think a lot of people have traditionally viewed the role of godparents as somebody that's able to take over as a parent, as a sur- surrogate parent. If anything ever happens to us, that that person presumably or these people can presumably raise that child, uh, then you also have to. And again, these are not factors weighted equally. You also, I think, have to take into the into account the issue of reciprocity. For instance, if I am godfather to someone's child, do the people that selected me as godfather to that child, do they get bumped up a couple of notches on the list of would-be godparents? I think the answer is yes. And then lastly, um, again, this is probably the least important factor that I came up with. The The last factor that I mentioned was novelty, right? You want kind of a cool godfather, right? I mean, how cool would it be, for instance, not saying this is going to be the case, but how cool would it be if our child had 
uh, like John Gotti Jr. as his godfather. Now, that would be cool if he could literally say his godfather was John Gotti. But it might also be cool to have a judge as a godfather, right? Certainly Curtis walking around with his beret. Curtis might be an interesting godfather or, uh, you know, somebody like, you know, so novelty is certainly a, a, a factor, a small factor, but a factor nonetheless. So those are the one, two, three, four, five factors that I came up with. And I'm curious, especially for those of you that have had children or grandchildren, what factors did you pick when selecting a godparent? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I think in our internal deliberations, we have a godmother selected, and we're down to our final four or five godfathers, the final four or five nominees for godfather. So give me a call. Let me know what you think. 800-848-WABC. You can comment on anything else we've covered today as well, because I know I've gone so long in these interviews, I haven't given you much of an opportunity to be heard. 800-848-9222. Dana is on Long Island. Hello, Dana. Hey, how are you? Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I wanted to corroborate what this guy Shepard was saying. I worked in television business for over 35 years. And in the early 90s, did an interview, series of interviews with Richard Nixon, with Chief Justice Warren Berger conducting these interviews, and we had to sign disclosure agreements. Actually, we shot it in uh, Mario Perillo's building. That's where Nixon had his office oh. in North Jersey. I, didn't I know. forgot what town it was in. It was a very ornate building. And essentially, I did sound on it. So I did the sound recording um, of him and Berger. And essentially, he was saying that he was set up and that he had nothing to do with it. Well, I look. I mean, uh, I can't look, go look, back to uh, what he's saying, but essentially, the thematic of the scene was that that was it. He would and not he goes, be, Nixon would not be the first person under criminal investigation to claim that he was set up. I mean, I would think a lot of people that find themselves the target of criminal probes say that. But uh, I will say of Jeff Shepard, look, he was he served honorably in the government in both the Nixon and the Ford administrations and his books. And again, I haven't read the most recent one yet, but it is so rare in terms of nonfiction literary voices. He is a participant and a lawyer participant in significant events who then becomes a memoirist and a scholar, an archival scholar. I'm hard pressed to to think of somebody that's worn all three of those hats. He was a newsmaker. He's a chronicler of the events right, right. in real time. And he's a researcher. So that's why I was eager to have him on. No, 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 but, but i got to say one thing. This is not an interview of one day. This is over three days. And he went into a lot of details. And maybe you should pass on to this guy. I don't know if he knows of this interview. It was in National Archives. I'm sure he can get a copy of it if he doesn't know about it already. How? Uh, yeah, I will, uh, I, will, I will run that by him. So what, you know what I mean? Because a lot was talked to him. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I, you know, I'm gonna, it might even be on his website, uh, shepherdonwatergate.com. I'll take a look. Dana, thanks for the call and the feedback. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Pete is in Passaic. Hello, Pete. Oh, hello there, Mr. Frank. I would say that the young person, as they're growing up, in their mind, they're trying to search for an identity. 
and they will from time to time refer in their mind to who is my godmother who is my godfather what are they what do they represent and so i would say it's a great deal more than only and economic stability. That's my point. Well, I, I, I didn't mention economic stability at all as a factor. Um, parents will, of course, naturally will think of if I died, who would uh, be able to take care of my, my family. Right. Well, so you don't what you're saying is you don't think that's a good factor. It's a very, very important factor, a sign of maturity and stability. Right. So I guess I'm lost, Pete. What, what are you saying exactly? I'm saying that uh, security and stability for your identity as a young person, and then later as you're growing up, you refer to them, say, well, what kind of godmother and godfather is this? What is their religious or spiritual guidance for that fact, other than somebody that would take care of me economically if my parents died? All right. So, Pete, what, what are you saying? You're saying the factor that you should consider is blank, fill in the blank. Uh, the factor that you should consider, of course, it would be, first of all, some type of stability and security. If I died, yes, that would probably be number one, saving your ass and then saving your religious, spiritual guidance, uh, of number two. Okay. Fair enough, Pete. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. When you pick a godparent. What factors, what factor or factors should you consider? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. One, two, three, four, five, six open lines if you want to comment or weigh in. Wilson is in New Jersey. Welcome aboard, Wilson. Good morning, sir, and congratulations on the birth of your child. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, the reason why I was calling is because uh, you were talking about godparents and the christening and the baptism uh, of whether it be evangelical or whether it be uh, Roman Catholic. You have to understand that. Well, uh, no, no, it wouldn't be evangelical. It would be Episcopal. Possibly. Episcopal. Yeah. Episcopal is uh, of the Protestant faith. And uh, the Protestant faith does not allow children to be baptized. They they are actually presented before the altar of God. And mm -hmm. those godparents have to be believers in Christ to raise up that child to believe that there is a supreme God and that Christ died for them. Uh, also, the other gentleman just stated a fact, economical, but also the morals and the values are going to be instilled in that child. They have to be in consideration. All right. So in general, the factors, as far as you're concerned, Wilson, should be the faith of the individual godparents, number one, and two, the ability of these people to take care of, of little Carmine if something were to happen to Rachel and me. Amen. Okay. It makes sense to me, Wilson. Those are two of the primary factors that I'm looking at here as well. 800-848-WABC. What factors do you consider? What factors are most important when you select godparents for your child? 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Jeff in Jersey City, what's on your mind? 
Well, Frank, I, I wanted to uh, comment on uh, Nixon um, impeach, uh, you know, uh, throwing him out of office and the abuse he took from the press, it, uh, from the guests that you had on previous. He was fantastic, I thought. Thank can you. I, can I do that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, anyway, so so what I and what brought it back to me was um, the treatment that Trump got from the press, and I thought nobody was treated like this since Richard Nixon. And it gave me all the more sympathy or respect for Nixon. And I realized why they went after Nixon so, so, so badly. First of all, Nixon actually was a superior intellect to, to, to Kennedy. Kennedy did so many things wrong. He got us in the Vietnam War, uh, but he, was, he became a martyr. He was uh, executed. Um, so once that happened, it was the martyr. It was the Vietnam War. They wanted to blame that on Nixon. Meanwhile, Nixon was thinking ahead and doing things like, how can we do things? Because China, after World War II, as you know history pretty well, they were really the, the real big pushes of, uh, of the Cold War, uh, very secretly. The Vietnam War especially, uh, without China, that Vietnam War would have died. They were helping the Vietnamese. And Nixon was doing everything he could to get to China and like, you know, put a, a peace to it. And the media didn't want to give Nixon credit for anything. And so they, they, they uh, performed, you know, that, that burglary happened, whatever they call it, the Watergate break-in. And uh, they, they um, you know, made it like the worst thing that ever happened in, in, in history. And they just kept harassing him almost till they made him insane. And um, then when, when Trump came along, of course, I thought, this is the same thing that happened to Nixon and when you had um, Roger Stone on that night, I just thought, uh, and he, you know, with his uh, tattoo of Nixon on the back, I thought, you know what, if I could get a t- tattoo on my back of Nixon, uh, I would, you know, uh, in other words, I really So did you do that? Did you get a, a tattoo of Nixon? Yeah, but it was the kind that you you've, uh, you take with uh, oh. a piece of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. But, um, but anyway... Um, but what do you think the, the comparisons about um, about Nixon, Trump, and also I think Nixon's stature is growing with historians. I, I, I agree with that. I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say and thanks for the call, Jeff. I wouldn't say his stature with respect to Watergate is growing, and I don't think most historians would concur with Jeff Shepard's re- review of the facts. Um, but he look, he offers a lot of evidence to support what he's claiming. But if you look at Nixon's accomplishments, they are substantial. I mean, here is a guy who look, I have my questions about his handling of it, but he opened up China, right? He had um, he had several disarmament treaties with the Soviet Union and pursued detente with the Soviet Union. He basically ended the Vietnam War, signed the legislation giving us the EPA, presided over the end of the military draft, appointed, uh, you know, so uh, look, I think he's done a lot of great things. His work defending Israel with the Six Days War. And uh, look, there are some aspects of his presidency that aren't, that aren't so good. I think you have to count Watergate among them. I think you have to look at inflation. 
uh, as a as a big problem during the Nixon era, as well as the the corruption of Spiro Agnew, who was selected by Nixon. So I think he he I do agree that particularly when it comes to foreign policy, Nixon's stature has grown over time, and uh, I don't think anybody, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum doubts his intellect. But whether it's domestic affairs or foreign affairs, there are some significant accomplishments of the of the Nixon administration. So you, you got to give him his due. You got to give him his due. I think you do. Uh, reduce tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Oh, and remember, he was the president during the moon landing. He kind of picked up where Kennedy Kennedy left off in terms of shepherding space travel, but ending U.S. involvement in Vietnam, initiating the drive for self-sufficiency and energy, a lot of other things as well. Uh, Significant contributions to fighting uh, cancer, a lot of other things too. By the way, one of the things Nixon has not solved is... The Battle of the Bulge. I'm not talking about World War II, where Nixon served in the Navy. I'm talking about my waistline. You know, I, I tried to wear a decent a decent suit today because I have to shoot a, a video after the show. And I did not even try to button the top button of my shirt because my neck has now gotten so large and so bulbous that no shirt that I have in my closet can even can stand up to the the mountain of fat that surrounds my neck right now. So uh, I am really looking forward to visiting the Skinny Center in Westchester County. Now, people are saying that I should get up to the Skinny Center now and get this process started before I reach the point of no return with holiday weight. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to try and do that. It's going to be difficult to get up there. Certainly, I can't get up there before Christmas, but hopefully before New Year's Eve. I'm going to hopefully get the comprehensive lab testing, which pinpoints abnormalities in your body chemistry that are the reasons you overeat, that are the reasons you crave sugar, and that are the reasons that you're hungry. Greg Kelly has been working with Mitch Suss from the Skinny Center. He looks great, and he says he feels great, and uh, that's exactly the kind of figure that I'm going to try and emulate. So if you're looking to lose some weight, whether it's a New Year's resolution or you have no desire to delay your weight loss, You can start now by reaching out to the Skinny Center. Should you be like Greg Kelly? Should you do it now? Think about it. Write this number down. Call the Skinny Center at 914-703-4811. That's 914-703-4811. Or go to theskinnycenter.com. That's the skinnycenter.com. Hey, we're going to do the $1,000 minute where we give you an opportunity to answer 10 questions in 60 seconds next. Just be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-WABC. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. If you've never played the contest before, you're going to have to answer 10 questions in only 60 seconds. It's difficult, but not impossible. The $1,000 minute, straight ahead. Hey, you want me as a vendor? 
uh, singing Santa Claus is a Black Man. Now, uh, this is a great song, and it's sort of considered a novelty song. Uh, but there actually are more and more black Santa Clauses. And um, you know what? A lot, of, uh, a lot of people have found that to be a pretty interesting experience for families that uh, come from traditions that uh, don't typically have a Santa represented. There was an article about a week ago in the Times in search of black Santa. So it was interesting. Uh, all right. Well, time now to give one lucky listener a chance to win some money. It's time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Yes, uh, we're going to play the $1,000 Minute, answer 10 questions in 60 seconds, win $1,000. If you can answer 9 in 60 seconds, you're going to win $500. And uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to offer the prize of 8 for for $250 because because I'm not officially sure if the station will, will pay for that. So I don't want to go in my pocket for that as well. But I feel pretty good with saying if you answer 10 right, you'll win 1,000. You know what? What the heck? It's Christmas. You answer 10 questions right, you'll get 1,000. You answer nine questions right in 60 seconds, you get uh, 500. And you answer eight questions right in 60 seconds, you will win $250. Let's meet today's contestant, Paul on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm doing um, – I didn't actually think I'd get through. Well, hey, congratulations. It's your lucky day. So, Paul, you've heard this yeah. contest before, right? Every night when I'm driving wonderful, home, Wonderful, wonderful. All right. So you know the rules. You know how it goes. The trick is these are all easy questions. The trick is don't okay. get flustered. Don't get nervous. Think a second and answer. If okay. you answer a question correctly, I'm going to move on to the next one. I'm not going to pat you on the back and say, great job. I'm just moving on to the okay. next one. Obviously, if you get the question wrong, then you'll hear the buzzer and, and the quest contest will be over. If you answer eight, you'll win $250. You answer nine, you win 500 And you answer 10, you'll win 1000 You ready to go? Very good. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, all right. Let me get my uh, timer. You here. hear me clear, right? You hear I hear you good? perfectly. Yes. All right. Let's get okay. started. What shape is the Earth? Round. What's the largest continent in the world? Oh, the largest continent. Oh, my God. Australia. Uh, unfortunately not, uh, Paul. It is Asia. 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 Yeah, that's the thing. I know people get flustered. And they rush an answer. You can't do that. The trick is, and if you look at the people that have done well, they take their time, they relax, and they and they answer the question. But we like Paul a lot, and he's a, a big supporter of this show, and I know he's been listening for a long time. So, Ryan, grab Paul's information, and we'll, we'll send him a complimentary The Other Side of Midnight Baseball cap for his trouble. If you want to win one – excuse me, if you want to purchase one of those – the other side of midnight baseball caps. You can go to wabcradiostore.com. That's wabcradiostore.com. All right. Uh, without further ado, every Tuesday we hear from you in terms of not verbal correspondence, but written correspondence. There's a number of you who have written in, and a few of those highlights 
should be shared with the broader audience. Time for... Before Phil Boyce was the program director, there was John Minnelli. But John Minnelli, who we had on the radio on the radio recently, he had two stints as program director, and he took a year off, a year off in between those two stints. And in between the program director between Minnelli's first administration and his second administration, sort of the Benjamin Harrison of WABC, was a woman named Valerie Geller. Nice woman, I know her, and she wrote Two, one, maybe more than two, but at least two books all about radio and how to be good at radio as a producer, as a talk talent. It's called Creating Powerful Radio. And there's one portion of that book where she says, always start with your best stuff. Well, I kept Valerie in mind when considering what letter to read first today. Because this is one of the great letters of all time. I'm going to start with this. Everything else pales in comparison. This was actually sent to my house. It is alarming that this person somewhat got my address and sent it to my wife. Under her, her she got her first name right. Her last name, her, her maiden name right, and her middle initial right. So this person did a substantial amount of research into tracking down who my wife is and where she lives. This is a person, uh, the return address says only Vega uh, in, from Jackson Heights, New York. Now, it's a beautiful Christmas card. Now, you can see this. A nice Christmas card. Hold it up to the microphone so you can see it. Uh, it's got a snowman on there. It's got a horse on there. It's a real beauty. Then you open it up, and the printed text of the Christmas card says, Season's Greetings. And then there's a handwritten portion. And remember, this is addressed to my wife, Rachel. This this is what it says. And I'm going to do my best to read this without laughing or crying. Question. Can you please explain to your husband... It is very disgusting to civilized people to hear him blab about eating octopus. I find him to be a ill man who cannot stop talking about himself. People who do this because if they do not keep their mouth shut from babbling, fear they will disappear. He also has an ego problem. He also has a ego problem, not an ego problem. I may suggest you leave him. And I can't make out, like, the the signature, uh, uh, row or ero, something. It's something short. It looks like two or three letters. That is one of the great letters of all time. And now I'm picturing the reaction that this guy expects from this letter. Is he expecting Rachel to open this up and say, oh, I suggest that you leave him. Oh, well, you know what? I will. I will. I'm strongly considering it. So there you go. That is far and away the best letter that I've gotten today. This is a letter that comes from Rosemary in Chatham, New Jersey. 
Uh, this she sent here two CDs, one for special music, for special moments. Who is that by? Uh, list. Uh, I uh, I can't see the artists in bubble wrap. Uh, lis- listening to the doctor, Dr. Bill Kolb, who I'm assuming is some relation to Rosemary Kolb. Dr. Bill Kolb performs lullabies and other classical favorites. And the other one is A Peaceful Christmas with the Alpine Zither. Okay, that's very nice. Very nice. Thank you, Rosemary. Here's another piece of snail mail here. I'm convinced that no one checks our P.O. box. So these are people that are just sending it to the radio station. If you want to know our mailing address, call Ryan. He'll, he'll tell you. This says, my name is Sheldon Zerdin. I may be the last living combat medic for the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. Wow. I fought with the 1st Infantry Division and earned the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. I saved the lives of 10 men. Wow. This has been a great source of pride for me all my life. This is all typed. I have written and published a memoir about my experiences in World War II, The Battle of the Bulge. In addition, I've authored 12 books, and the list of titles is enclosed. I'm available for both radio and television interviews. I look forward to speaking with you about setting up a date and time for them. Please contact me at, and he gives his number, or my agent, uh, and he gives her name and number. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely yours, Sheldon Certain. Wow, that is great. That sound that is exactly the kind of person that I'd like to have on the radio, and I will reach out to Mr. Zerden. That is exactly the words that I had been saying that I would be saying right now if Mr. Zerden had bothered to sign this letter, but he didn't sign it. He just typed it without a signature. Now, how how do I have him on the radio? If he didn't even bother to sign this letter. I mean, you save the lives of 10 guys. You can't be bothered to scribble your name. Come on, Mr. Zerden. Better luck in the next war, my friend. All right. Uh, This is an email uh, from Daniel. Frank, a lot of us can't attend. Oh, this is uh, regarding New Year's Eve. A lot of us can't attend due to work. Have you suggested to management that you be allowed to stream the New Year's Eve Eve festivities on the WABC YouTube page? Either Curtis will be covering your show or a best of will be on that night. This would be a great alternative broadcasting. Sorry I can't attend, Dan B. Let me make this very clear. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This will not be streamed. The revolution will not be televised. Neither will this party. We want people to be able to relax and let their hair down and get wild. Do you think they're going to be doing that if there are microphones and cameras everywhere? No way. We want people dancing on tables, lampshades over their heads. Forget about that, Dan. Absolutely not. The fewer records of this, the better. It's best if it's only kept up as an oral tradition. Uh, This is an email from Phil. Frank, I enjoy your nightly program. On recent mornings, you held the nightly contest to get 10 questions right. Before the contest, you announced that smaller prizes would be awarded for getting eight or nine questions right. The contestants missed on the second or third question, and you ended the game. Shouldn't they get a chance to answer the rest of the questions? Maybe he'd get them all right and therefore win a prize under the new rules of the contest. Just a thought. Again, I enjoy your show. Phil from Long Island. No. No pass option. First of all, the questions get gradually harder later in the quiz. So if you're getting the second or third question wrong, you're not going to 
get the seventh or eighth one right. No. And you're making me burn questions. No, no pass option. Come on. And, and it, no. No pass option. Uh, this is from a listener named Denise. Frank, do you care that you're selling falsehoods about Joe Biden to people who don't know better and love to hate? Good work, Frank. In case you don't understand, inflation is caused by a lack of goods, which increases the price of available goods. Telling your less than brilliant audience that Joe Biden is responsible for the current situation, for the current inflation, is disgusting. Unless Joe created COVID, which caused the interruption of every facet of business. He isn't responsible for the ensuing, the ensuing inflation. By the way, inflation is currently international, not a U.S.-only issue. Every time I risk listening to your lies and prejudices, I'm sorry I did. This time is no different. How do you live with yourself? You must know, or are very stupid, that you are distorting reality to fuel anger in your low-life listeners. Ugh! Uh, Frank, if your son grows up with your values, watch out, Denise. Curtis has your number. P.S. Curtis does, does a good take on you. Uh, this next while do two more here. This next one comes to us from J.E. Lawrence. How come Curtis and your shows are not simulcast on YouTube overnight? Thanks. By the way, I am told that this is one of the plans for the new year. Is that we are going to uh, we are going to be simulcasting this show soon? I don't know when, but it will be it will be soon. I have to be honest; I am not that eager to simulcast this show. Not only because I uh, don't really love how I'm looking these days, and I but I I actually prefer radio to be an auditory medium. I like to do weird things with my hands and my voice, kind of do little sound effects. And that loses a little bit if you see how I do it. So I am not at all, I am not at all rushing that process along, but that will be happening regardless. Uh, this email comes to us from a listener that prefers not to be named. Uh, he was giving, he, he gives his review on my interview with John Minnelli. John Minnelli, it was a coffee clutch, sans coffee. Were you both knitting sweaters while chatting like elderly gossips? That strikes me as as good a point as any to end this edition of The Mail. If you ever want to send me email, you can do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. You can also find me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. We would encourage you to follow that Facebook page, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, because um, I we had our graphics department put together a new graphic thanking all of you for getting me to 4,600 followers. But right now, we're only at 4,591 followers. So until we break that threshold of getting nine more people, that graphic is sitting in the bullpen, and it's kind of being wasted. 
So help us get to that graphic. Additionally, we're on Twitter, at Frank Morano. You know, I was in this restaurant waiting for my COVID test, even though apparently I was in there longer than I had to be because they were looking for me online. And my the, my friend Joe LaRocca, the owner of this restaurant, he's talking with the bartender and a friend of his who came in all about how into NFTs they are. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And I, I've looked at non-fungible tokens. And Joe, he holds up his phone and right there in the restaurant sitting next to me or standing next to me is Captain America. I said, what? what? What is this? What is it? You got this on your phone? He says, yeah, it's a non-fungible token. I bought it from Marvel. I said, why? You bought it. How much did you buy it for? $500. He paid $500 to essentially look through his phone and see Captain America wherever he wants to see him. So that's the future. That's what everyone's saying. Non-fungible tokens, non-fungible tokens. Anthony Weiner is looking to get involved in this now. And I'd like to get involved in this, but I don't really have any digital creations. So then I read that you can turn some of your tweets into non-fungible tokens. However, the problem is none of my tweets have become super viral yet. So what I would ask is just find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano, and retweet a whole bunch of my stuff so that one of these tweets can become viral so that I can make it into a non-fungible token, sell that non-fungible token, and make a lot of money selling it. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. I, you know, I put my, there is this website that you can put your um, tweets up there to see who wants to buy them. No one's bidding on my tweets as non-fungible tokens. Lo and behold, apparently my tweets are a not exactly a hot commodity. Inflation is hitting every other aspect of the economy. Oil, food, ice cream, computers, cars, houses. Somehow, the one area of our economy that is still immune from inflationary pressures are my tweets. And you can stop that. You can make my tweets more valuable by just finding me on Frank Morano and retweeting. All right, time now for the WABC clip of the day. This comes to us from my friend Larry Kudlow. Here, Larry tries to understand why natural gas is now off limits across several states. Yes, some of these crazy states, New York, California, as I understand it, I don't know who else. New rules, no natural gas can be used. No natural gas. What are you going to do for home eating? And by the way, nat gas is the cleanest fuel. <clears throat> the reason our emissions are off 25%, actually 22% since 2005, we're the world's leader. So they want to stop. These are the crazy climate change people. There you go. You can listen to Larry Kudlow every Saturday morning from 10 a.m. to 1 P.M. He does a great job every Saturday. Larry's a friend of mine. Not only is he a smart guy, even when I end up disagreeing with him, he is a guy that is a snappy dresser. Let me tell you something. He pulls off one of my favorite wardrobe options better than anybody. He does a white collar, white cuff combo better than anybody. Anybody. The only guy that was close was Larry Silverstein. But I don't see Larry Silverstein on TV that much anymore. So I got to give the edge to my man, Larry Kudlow. All right. Uh, what else do we have? Um, 
for you. Hey, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just five minutes. Just give me a call. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We have one, two, three, four, five open lines, uh, plus one person who apparently is banned from being on the air who's still holding. I'm hoping he'll get the message that he's not going to be taken and he'll hang up and that'll open up a sixth line as well. Uh, and just so people know, I don't have any say in banning people. Uh, it it's, uh, takes place. I've never banned anybody from any show I've been a part of. Uh, the, the, these decisions get made at a much higher level than I am a party to. Now, I am hoping – I'm getting very nervous at seeing everything being canceled these days and seeing all these people come down with COVID. Now, meanwhile, they are reporting these COVID rates of people getting positive with COVID, this and that. They're reporting this as if COVID is still just as bad as it was a year ago when they're saying that 73 percent of these new COVID cases are the Omicron variant. The Omicron variant is nothing. Omicron variant, as my friend Lauren characterized it, as my friend Imran characterized it, it's mild cold symptoms. As my friend uh, Lauren characterized it, it's a sneeze. It's a sneeze. Uh, So, please, let's not shut down the world for this Omicron variant that doesn't seem to be killing anybody. Killed one person in South Africa with every precondition in the world. So, even if they end up shutting down indoor dining and this and that, I am hoping I still get to have my New Year's Eve Eve party in Atlantic City. This is going to be something. If you want to come and you don't have an invitation, just email me. I'll send you an invitation, uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. This, I have no idea what to expect here. This is going to be very unusual, primarily because I do, I will not have the sane hand of my wife guiding every aspect of this. So I could see a dozen people coming. I could see a hundred people coming. I have no idea what to expect, but I am hoping that uh, we're able to keep everything open at least until at least for another ten days. That's all I'm asking. And I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to next year, in addition to next year's invitation that I send out, I am going to collect all of the New Year's Eve Eve emails that I've written and publish them, even if I have to self-publish, publish them as a book and get a nice illustrator to do some, some you know, nice cover illustration or something and then sell this book in the hopes that people around the, around the country, maybe even around the world, decide to start celebrating New Year's Eve Eve. Sort of like what happened with Seinfeld and Festivus. So that's my plan for next year. So that's something to look forward to. Mark your calendars. 15 seconds of fame. Next, all you have to do is dial 800-848-9222. Two open lines, 1-800-848-WABC. Be heard for 15 seconds straight ahead.
Thank you, Andy B, for this delightful theme song. And as we close out each and every show, we do it by giving you, Rank Amateurs, the opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. All you have to do is dial 1-800-848-9222 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let's begin with Patrick in the Bronx. Hey, Patrick. Congratulations on the new addition to the Moranos. If we want to avoid socialism, please stop creating the conditions that lead to it. Anthony is in Edison. Yes, good morning to Denise, the emailer. Frank's doing a great job in the Biden administration. There's a bunch of lying, hypocritical traitors. Have a good day. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, I'd just like to know and just like to get on the list for Godfather, for Little Carmine. But please don't ask me about my business. Raji in Manhattan. When Curtis left WABC, so did a mostly unbelievable commercial. Now, once again, alas, it's back with Curtis. My God. Pete on Staten Island. Merry Christmas to everyone. All the listeners of 77 WABC and you, Frank, and your new son, Carmine. The best of everything. Joe and Ron Konkama. Hey, Frank, that woman that wrote that letter, Denise, you're not wrong and you're not a moron. Joe Biden is. He appointed Buttigieg. Let's go, Brandon. Steve in White Plains. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. Victor in Manhattan. You know, if the Chai comes forced Pen Chewy to retract her accusation of sexual attack, then rhetorically, what reason is there to believe that the Chai comes hadn't forced the Wuhan lab scientists to lie about COVID? 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, though that truck driver in experience made several gross mistakes, there are intentional, heinous crimes that get a lot less of a sentence than that. Jimmy in Staten Island. Frank, that woman that wrote that terrible letter uh, about you, it's all false, but to mention your beautiful, innocent child... She should get a wart on her tongue where she can't talk anymore. That's disgusting. And God bless you and your family. Thank Merry you. Christmas. Thank you, uh, Jimmy. I guess we'll end it there. Uh, it seems as good of a point as any. Deborah Valentine is warming up in the bullpen to bring you some news that's very newsy, but it's also very early. Hence the title of the program, The Early News. You're going to hear traffic and weather on the sevens. Excuse me. You'll hear traffic and transit on the sevens. You'll hear weather. You got business with uh, Frank Diaz and a whole bunch of other, a uh, whole bunch of other stuff. So, uh, that certainly should be, should be interesting. I am going to stick around until eight o'clock today because we have to shoot this video as part of our efforts to do some interesting things for the other side of midnight for the new year. So, uh, and I know that came as a, a big disappointment to my wife because she basically she basically said, you know, I really look forward to 6 a.m. coming around so that I could sleep for a couple hours. Now she's got to wait until, I don't know, 9 or 10. So I'm going to try and sleep for a couple hours now so that when I get home, I can look after young Carmine and allow my wife to sleep. But 
chances are I'll probably do a Facebook video or something. Maybe we'll do a Facebook Ask Me Anything around 7.30 as I wait for everybody else to get here. So if you want to watch that, just uh, follow the Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I'll be back tomorrow with Anson Williams, Bobby Valentine, and Scott Shea. That's what's scheduled. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see where it goes. The WABC Early News is next. Email me if you want to stay in touch. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. Frank Morano, good day.